Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. G'day, tech enthusiasts, and welcome back to Tech Talk as we dive into the digital domain once more. This week, I'm flying solo as I wrap up our rewind with the best of the bunch from the second half of season three. We're set to revisit the most riveting revelations and groundbreaking gadgets that graced our discussions. So strap in for a stroll down Silicon Memory Lane where the past paves the way for our future fancies. Are you ready to reboot the remarkable? Let's launch into it. Come a long way in terms of public health since, since the 1980s when the removal of lead from petrol kicked in. Here are two interesting facts for you. The last time you could buy lead petrol here in Australia was as late as the 31st of December 2001. Now that surprised me. And you can still buy leaded petrol in six countries around the world and they're mostly in the Middle East, but surprise, surprise, also in North Korea. Now, losing lead out of petrol has cleaned up the air markedly and people are better off as a result. But we're, pe- we're still pumping out carbon monoxide, various toxic hydrocarbons and large particulates with every car trip running on an internal combustion engine. So imagine the improvement in public health when we're finally all 100% EV. Matt, is that going to happen? One of the interesting arguments I have with friends of mine sometimes around various ways we produce power and various ways we propel cars is the climate change argument is there, but then I finally think I get somewhere in the argument when I talk about pollution. Mm. In other words, would you rather have a coal-fired power station next door to you spewing out pollution or some wind turbines? And of course people go, well, yeah, I might like the look of wind turbines, but surely it's got to be better. And same with cars. Would you rather be sucking on the end of a tailpipe when you're out (laughs) walking the streets or sucking on the end of a car that goes and drives on batteries. So it seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Oh, look, I used to walk up Parramatta Road uh, a bit uh, while I was living in Sydney in the mid-90s. And, um, yeah, just it would sting your nostrils after a while and you'd have a bit of a headache. You'd just feel doughy. Yeah, um, yeah Parramatta Road being a pretty busy sort of stretch of road. Uh, but, um, you yeah, know, this is when leaded petrol was well and truly on its way out. <laughs> so it wasn't just lead that I was absorbing. Yeah. You were probably saying a bit of lead and a bit of carbon monoxide and everything else. But it is, I actually noticed it because... Of course, we live in a regional area. I notice when I go to somewhere like a Sydney or even overseas, if I go to an LA or a Beijing, I actually do notice the first couple of days, I actually feel short much. of breath. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so we often talk about EVs from a climate change perspective, but the American Lung Association has done some research on what the pollution is doing from a health perspective. And I there thought, this is fantastic. Thank you, American Lung Association. It's another angle, and this is absolutely fantastic. So they've done a calculation, and they said, if you could just flick a switch. Now, this isn't going to happen, but it, it was done to demonstrate why we should be heading down this path. They said, if you flicked a switch today, and you said, that's it, I'm going to change all cars to EVs, I'm going to change all power production to non-fossil fuel power production, so it might be nuclear, wind, solar, etc. And if you did that immediately in one hit, jump to the year 2050, what have you done? What what change have you made in society by doing that today over the next 27 years? And they said from a health perspective only, nothing to do with climate change, just from what's in the air, you would save 89,000 lives 
and $1 trillion in health costs alone. Yeah, right. It's fairly significant, is it? Now, obviously, we're not going, you, you can't flick a switch and say everything changed tomorrow to be suddenly EVs and, and all green power being produced. But it gives you an idea that it's not such a bad path to head down. Mm-hmm. If we can start heading in that direction as soon as possible and get to that point where the whole country is run on EVs and clean power, that's going to make a fair difference to our health. We're not going to save 89,000 lives because obviously as you go forward, it's going to take time to change over there, but we might be able to save 50,000 lives, mm. 40,000 lives. I remember reading a study out of the University of Chicago over a year ago that said that air pollution created by the burning of fossil fuels reduced the global life expectancy of each person by 2.2 years. Now, there are other factors at play, yeah, wow. but if it was just done on the pollution, you've got a fair difference in life expectancy. So that's quite incredible. So when you look at this sort of data and you have all your arguments against EVs for a whole range of other reasons, there's another reason now to look at EVs, and that's from a health perspective, protecting mm. the health of everyone across the world. So it's quite fascinating. And I like, I like the attitude the American Lung Association has gone down to try and look at this. I'm sure they're still working on people with smokes and vapes, but that's a couple other issues there. But well, at least with this, you a can... saving of a trillion dollars is a substantial thing, a bit of lunch money for everyone, a bit of extra lunch money. And one of the things that often is talked about with our, I like to call it the, the new economy, is as we move over to this whole new way of producing power, this whole new way of, of powering our nation, then people often talk about the cost of that. But then you look at this and you say, well, Maybe we should flip that around. Maybe we could save money by electrifying everything rather than actually the cost of it. And there's a health cost, which I must admit, I don't think about when I talk about climate change and talk about the change we should be having. I don't start to say, but what about the health costs? I'm thinking of a whole range of other issues, but it's a really good point that we used to talk about a lot more. I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, we used to talk about smog and uh, photochemical smog in particular. Right. Yeah, the big thick stuff that looks really smoky. Uh, yeah, um, we don't talk about it so much anymore because the air has cleaned up a bit there, but we've still got a way to go. And there's new standards, obviously, with cars. They've yeah. got uh, catalytic converters. Yeah, as you said, sure. They've had lead taken out of them. So a whole range of changes there. So it's better, but it's still not as good as it could be. And now for a story to annoy people who are dead set against wind farms. Apparently wind farms are no noisier than traffic. Matt, this is a minor emergency. We're running out of genuine complaints about wind farms now. Oh, no, no. No, There'll be more. Don't worry. There'll be some other excuses to come up with. This is a legal case on the Bald Hills wind farm. And, of course, there were some people nearby complaining about the wind farm noise or the wind turbine Mm. noise. So they conducted a study at Flinders University. They took 68 participants. They had the equivalent of 460 sleep study nights. And they basically set the participants up with seven consecutive nights in the sleep lab. Not a bad job to get. Your job is to go in the sleep lab and go to sleep. Okay, (laughs) what do I do now? And then they played noise that was from a wind farm or the noise that was from traffic to gauge the different sleep patterns that people might have. What they found out of that process is that people sleeping with the wind farms tended to sleep okay. People that slept with the road noise had less sleep or more wake-ups than the people near wind turbines. And they put this down to a couple of reasons. One was the road noise was actually more, so the wind turbines didn't produce anywhere near as much noise as people had claimed. But the other part was that the road noise is intermittent. It's very unusual to have a road nearby that's just got a constant stream Mm. of the same sound. 
Whereas a wind turbine is pretty much the same sound, but I actually, I'm not convinced there's a lot of sound that comes out of a wind turbine because I've stood underneath them and I can hear the, what I call the whoosh, whoosh as the tip goes above me. And I'm talking about directly above me. Yeah. I move away a few metres and all I can hear is wind noise because guess what? They put wind turbines where it's windy. So you tend to hear more wind noise than you do the actual turbine noise. So you're in trouble if your bedroom is directly underneath <laughs> the bottom of a wind turbine. That's right. Turbine. If you build your bedroom underneath <laughs> the blade of a wind turbine. Or if someone builds their wind turbine in your backyard. <laughs> that's right. So maybe that's the, the solution here. Don't build a turbine on top of someone's house and you should be okay. <laughs> the other complaint, of course, they give is the ultra-low frequencies. Now, the human ear, when we were much mm. younger... 20 hertz up to 20,000 hertz or 20 kilohertz is about the range of human hearing. But of course, by the time you get to my age, I certainly don't have 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz anymore. But the ultra-low frequency is one of the issues that people complain about as well. Now, they try to do testing on that. Yes, there are some ultra-low frequency sounds that come out of a wind turbine, but we can't hear them. Mm. Are they really getting into our body and affecting something in some way or somehow. Well, when you think about 20 hertz, that's 20 taps per second or 20 beats per second, Mm. and you can almost make out each individual beat, right? So it's just like someone tapping you with a very gentle stick there. Yep. Uh, I don't know. Look, yeah. Well, there's been no proof of any ill effects from that low frequency sound at this stage. If you can, in fact, set it up to actually hear it or feel it, And that was another experiment that I've seen done, not this particular one. This one was really just about the noise, which effectively the result of this was that, no, the noise is not going to affect your sleep. The noise is not really there at all. And we've got a a study with research, an independent study to prove that. But the other one I've seen is where they would put people in a house nearby and they'd say, we've got wind turbines over there. And each night or each hour, you don't know whether the wind turbine is spinning or not. Let's see if you can mark on a on a graph whether or not right now you can feel that low frequency sound. Yeah, right. And all that people were able to do was about the same as guessing. Yeah. So there was no random, random chance. Random chance, that's exactly right. So there was no proof that they could feel the low frequency sounds coming out of the wind turbine. So again, the example I always give is if someone said to me I want to build a wind turbine next year, a wind farm or a coal fired power station, I'd be taking the wind farm every single day. Thank you very much. tells a thousand words, then an emoji has got to be worth a short sentence at least. But a word for the wise, be careful about shooting your emojis from the hip, it could end up costing you dearly. As it turns out, a thumbs up emoji is as good as signing on the dotted line or so a Canadian court has ruled. Matt, what is the world coming to? Head scratch a puzzled face comical question mark. (laughs) It's fascinating, isn't it? Because emojis I tend to think of as something that you would use flippantly, something that we use casually, I wouldn't really think of an emoji as something that's a serious contractual obligation. And that's exactly what this whole court case was about. But it's not the only court case. This is one that's got a final result. But there there have been about 45 similar cases across the US. And this Canadian court was obviously using some of those as an example. Now, given the fact that the data shows that 92% 
of the world's population uses emojis, then <laughs> maybe some people will start to go, oh, I better think about these emoji or this emoji use a little bit more. Now, the exact example here was in relation to a farming contract. There was a contract that came across for the delivery of a certain product from a farmer and the farmer sent back a thumbs up emoji. Now, two people disagreed on what that meant. Mm. One side of them said, well, that was just, okay, I've got that. Thanks very much. I'll have Ah. a think about it. That's reading a lot into a thumbs up emoji, but yep, okay, I've received it. All good. And if I want to go further, I'll come back to you and sign the contract and complete the deal. The other side thought, well, that means... I'm ready to go. Full steam ahead. Thumbs up. Absolutely right. Everything's okay. And that ended up going to court. And the Canadian court actually ruled that the thumbs up emoji was as good as signing oh, that contract. I'm not convinced of that, but I'm not the Canadian the president court. has been set. Exactly right. Now, what was the cost of this thumbs up emoji? Well, the contract was worth 61442 Canadian dollars. Mm. So that's what the judge ruled had to be paid for the unfulfilled contract. So (laughs) it just seems incredible to me. But again, look, I suppose part of the error here is that if you use a a thumbs up emoji, if you use an emoji in a very much a business context, someone sending you a contract, then you probably need to be a little bit more formal in your correspondence. And I guarantee from now on, that 92% might go down quite dramatically <laughs> in thumbs up or emojis across the world. I wonder what world. gifts are going to do now. Well, so if, if you send a gift through, so it could had wind a, you up in all sorts of strife. If you had a gif of someone doing a, a click the uh, heels down the, the hallway, for example, yeah. would that mean that, that I love this contract? <laughs> this is so great, this contract, I'm clicking my heels. Oh, it does open up a whole range. But what it does show is the way we're communicating is changing dramatically. Now, I hate it when my kids sent me a text message with spelling errors or yeah. just words like great, G-R, number eight. Mm-hmm. No, mm. use the yeah. word properly. Frustrates hell out of me. But maybe I'm a dinosaur and maybe I can now write in formal communication G-R-8 because <laughs> it's used in text messages, so that's okay, isn't it? In the next contract you send out? Yeah, that's yep. right. I'm right. going to find every abbreviation I can find for every word. Dot it with emojis all through it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And then make sense of that if you dare. <laughs> time of year again folks it's been a long wait but the new emojis are out and likely to dominate the water cooler conversations around the world matt what bombshells have been dropped this year i left this to last because i do know that you love your emojis it's exciting (laughs) and these haven't been finally approved the final approval process is not till september it's unlikely they'll change from what we've got at the moment so they've been out they're announced they're saying here they all are but well, I've got a big smiley face and two thumbs up with hands waving. <laughs> good, good, good. So the Unicode Consortium doesn't give their final stamp of approval till September. But we've got some significant changes here, including a number of emojis using zero-width joiners, the good old ZWJ sequences. <laughs> so some of these emojis are now double-up emojis. So they've right. actually used two existing emojis and put them together to create a new emoji. Right. But by using ZWJ, it does sound like it, but they're using ZWJ, so there's nothing between them, so that that is still counted as one emoji. But it did seem like cheating a little bit. But we've also got a lime. I've been wanting a lime. <laughs> 
because there are times when I'm thinking a bit of fish with lemon, I don't mind, but lime every now and again. So when I'm sending my order through, I've got to write the word lime (laughs) rather than a lime emoji, which is pretty frustrating. There's the head shaking vertically. Now, you'd think that would have been there already, right. but apparently we've got so head like shaking that's nodding, or is it? Or? That's nodding. Yeah. But in some cultures, the head shaking vertically is the opposite. We would think that of as a, as a yes, but in some places that's apparently a no, oh, okay. which is a bit Be confusing. Be careful about that one, folks. That's right. Don't use that one loosely. Uh, Phoenix bird emojis, you know, rising from mm. the ashes maybe. I'm not sure yeah. exactly. But we've got 108 new emojis. One of the things that's interesting in this is that we're now getting direction-specific emojis. So in the past, you might have had man walking, but now you'll have Ah. man walking to the left and man walking to the right. (laughs) And it's interesting because what happens, as we know from our previous in-depth discussions about emojis, is that the Unicode Consortium says, here are the emojis, here's the latest list of emojis. But then it's up to each individual organisation that uses emojis. So for example, it might be, Google, it might be Apple, it might be Microsoft, they can create their own design. Sometimes I come up with some sample designs and some say, here are some examples of what you could use, but you create your own. And interestingly enough, when you look at man walking, then most of the time, most of the companies that have created their emoji list have got them going to the left. For whatever reason, it just seemed to be okay. I'm putting a man walking, man running. It's well, that's going not enough. You're following to head to the other way. Exactly right. Now yeah. it does seem like an interesting problem. Do I, when I'm one of those companies that's going to put that final list out, do I just flip the man walking to the left and give that as a man walking to the right, or do I have a new design <laughs> new for design. my man walking to the right? <laughs> because it seems a bit lazy just to flip it over. <laughs> So maybe I should have a new design for It feels like it could be just a click of a mouse. (laughs) It could be. (laughs) So it is interesting. I do encourage people to go and have a look. Are we losing any emojis? Are they going, right, well, if we're going to have a man walking left and a a man walking right, then uh, maybe we're going to have to lose the smiley face or the thumb up. Well, you do wonder whether we have too many emojis. Please don't take away the smiley face or the thumb up. That's going (laughs) to undo a lot of my conversations. And I'm going to create a lot of controversy by saying that that maybe we have too many emojis. Surely not. (laughs) No, how could you say that? But maybe we do have too many. But at this stage, no. The 108 new emojis they've proposed are adding to our emoji list. Mm. But surely we get to the stage where you do have too many. I wonder if there's some way where they could monitor some sort of global count of emoji usage compiled by all the different companies, so Apple, Google, Samsung, Microsoft, etc., whether they have some way of saying, I need your count for how many of each of the individual emojis that are used. Because we need to clear out some of the clutter. Yeah, the ones that are down the bottom. the Liberian flag is used. (laughs) Well, in Liberia, maybe a lot. (laughs) So, all those people in Liberia, please don't send me complaints. I was just (laughs) going to say that um, it's now getting a bit complicated because if I want to veer off anything uh, that isn't the smiley face and the thumb up, I then know, oh, yeah, I remember seeing an emoji like that. I'm going looking for that, and I've got to spend 20 minutes looking for it. Mm, that's right. So you can't have too many emojis, surely. Well, maybe you, well, you can. Sorry, you can have too many emojis, that's yeah, what I'm to say. I, th- I think so. And again, maybe keyboard shortcuts. So you might use some keyboard shortcuts for different emojis, but you've got to run out of how many yeah. buttons are control mm-hmm. and shift and mm-hmm. alt and then this to get one particular mm-hmm. emoji. So it does get complicated. But keep an eye out. Can't look at those. We've also got a brown mushroom. Now, brown mushroom is the first non-animal emoji to be given a specific colour variation. Ooh. So not just mushroom, right. but brown mushroom. 
That's that significant. <laughs> that's significant, James. You, you, the look in your face, and our listeners can't see. And the I wish face. I knew my mushrooms better, but um, it's not the shiitake mushroom. It's um, it's just a different color of mushroom. A different color of mushroom. The look on your face said, "Do we really need that?" And and for all those emoji lovers out there, James didn't mean it. Okay. For those people who've been waiting for the brown mushroom for so long, that's right. I'm really sorry. <laughs> So it's significant. This is significant, James. This is the biggest story we've done today about the emoji list. Go and check it out. Have a look at those different directional emojis and everything else that's there as well. Access to clean water, clean drinkable water, in fact, is a basic human right. However, in 2023, with a global population of over 8 billion and 8.5% of that in poverty, there's a significant group without access to affordable and reliable supply of fresh, drinkable water. The reasons for this are perhaps for another podcast, but about 650 million people in the world are never sure that their water is okay for consumption. So Matt is here now. You're going to share with us an innovation in the form of a little sticker that may make a huge difference for those to whom potable water is as precious as gold. Matt. Mm, very, very clever. Who has a recommendation that if you want to purify some water, put it in the sun for six hours? Mm. And that method should eradicate most of the bacteria, viruses, microorganisms. Now, they're not saying take some muddy water, scrape it out of some bottom of the creek and stick it in the sun and magically six hours later, you'll have clear water. But it's more about water you pull from a well, water that you might take. You've got to start off with a clear water. Basically, yeah, make it so that it looks okay to begin with. Put in the sun for six hours and away you go. Now, that sounds okay. So that's a UV light hitting the bacteria. They don't like it. Now, that sounds fine except... The sun could be in the middle of the day sun or mm. evening sun or you could be somewhere where the sun's low in the sky in winter or right up high in the sky in summer. There could be some clouds around. So it's not really that accurate to say six hours. Mm. And what you find in some areas where they use this particular method is they're okay most of the time, but every now and again there'll be a bit of a diarrhea outbreak in the village mm. because probably it was cloudy for the last couple of days or the sun's lower in the sky, whatever it might be. What we've got now is an Australian scientist down in Wollongong who's invented a safe sticker. Now, the safe sticker basically is an indicator of UV exposure. You put the sticker on your clear container. You sit it out in the sun, and it probably is going to be about six hours, but if the sticker hasn't changed colour from light pink to black, then it wasn't enough time. You need to leave it out in the sun. When it gets the equivalent of six hours of a uh, necessary sun exposure, that sticker will change colour. When it changes colour, that water is safe to drink. Mm. How simple is that? These stickers are one-off. I've got to assume that in the middle of summer, when UV is extreme, it might even be less than six hours. It could be. That's exactly right. I'm sure that when Who came up with that recommendation for six hours, they took uh, average, average. Yeah, and yeah, said, yeah. well, about six hours should be right most yeah, of the safe, time. Yeah. And they might have added a little bit of a safety margin there, but there's so many variables. And that's why I might stick it out the sun, but then the sun goes behind a tree. Mm. So there's so many variables. But with the sticker on there, there are no variables. The sticker is mm. on the bottle. The sun is exposed, or the sticker is exposed to the sun, and the water is exposed to the sun. Once it's had that equivalent of enough time, then you can be pretty confident that every time that happens, you use that water and it's going to be safe to drink. So they're using this. They're doing some experiments now in Cambodia. They've been working on this for some time. They actually started with 10 families doing some tests, and they found that 
They didn't have outbreaks of diarrhea. They didn't have any stomach cramps. They didn't have any oh, illnesses. Wow. And they've now expanded it to a 1,000 households. And again, same thing happening. They're just not getting these random illnesses they used to get when they used to purify it by the random six hours before. Any idea if the sticker's reusable? So does no, it's it, not. So yeah, it's, right. a, it's a one-off use sticker. But look, that's okay. The stickers, and I can't tell you how much, but the stickers are cheap to produce. Yeah. So you would just produce a bunch of them and say, mm. here you go, stick those on those bottles. And if you were trying to be really clever with the use of those, you'd probably have a bunch of bottles together and you'd probably stick the sticker on one of them. Mm. Now, I'm sure they recommend sticking on every single one, but if you put it on one in a group together... It's a timer, effectively. It is a timer, but with exposure. Yeah, that's so right, with yeah. exposure, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's basically going to do the check for all of them. Exactly right. So I just I think that's a, a really clever method, and I love the fact that it's an Aussie in Wollongong, University of Wollongong, who says, I'm going to make a change to the world. There's a, a charity they run, there's a, a family here that is part of this, the Water Gift Charity. Mm. Look it up, it's actually quite interesting. And the family, there's the Butson family, a number of those people in the family have done some pretty clever things. So easy for us in the Western world just to um, take fresh water for granted. Mm. Um, yeah, what a wonderful thing that they can finally yeah, be shared around a little bit more. Talk about making a difference in the world from something that seems very clever but also very simple, mm. as so many clever things are once someone's come up with it. Absolutely. the land containing livestock is not without its frustrations. Fences are fantastic while they're intact, but a mongrel to maintain sometimes. A fence in disrepair is a ticket to freedom for the entire herd. So, virtual fences are starting to become a bit of a thing in Australia. Far from new technology, smart collar systems have been adapted for the dairy industry in Tassie. And now to muster uh, and monitor your cattle. But they're not for everyone, Matt. They don't seem to be for everyone. Now, we did do a story some months ago about some virtual fencing in WA. Mm. And in WA, you've got some farms that are large. To say <laughs> that's yeah. right. And building a fence around that. I've done some fencing when I was a kid, helping out in a vertical with some friend. I think I was just slave labour for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. But fencing is not a lot of fun. And when you've got big fences, like you've got some of the farms in WA, exactly, that sounds like not a lot of fun. And not only, I mean, that's putting in the fence for the first time, then that fence needs to be maintained as well. It's not much good if there's just one little hole in it somewhere because yeah. the cattle will find that. Now, that was a little bit different. That was just containing them. This goes a step further where if you're a dairy farmer... You're going to be up early in the morning. And some you've got dairy to bring farmers. Them all in that's every right. Every morning, and you can't say, you know what? I'm going to sleep in today. I'm going to go and run the city to surf today. The cattle <laughs> will be okay. The cows will be okay because they need to be milked every there day. Are no holidays for dairy farmers. There are none, and I I know some dairy farmers often talk about three o'clock in the mornings when they get up to start bringing oh, the cows in. Wow. So that's a tough gig every single day. But if you could have some way magically of bringing those cows in and having them there ready to be milked then that sounds like I can sleep in for another couple of hours. Mm. And that's exactly what's happening in Tasmania at the moment. But it's already been happening for some time in New Zealand. And I don't want to say it too loudly, but I'm often impressed by the ingenuity and innovative products and processes that New Zealanders come up with. They're often yeah. ahead of the curve with Absolutely. some things. There's 100,000 cows in New Zealand that have some of these smart collars. Now, these smart collars, which is where we get a bit of controversy, they provide sound and vibration cues to direct the cattle into where they need to go. So better than just you're about to cross a virtual fence, 
okay, it's now time to be directed into the the yards to be milked. And, and some people have got dog collars like this as well, yeah, mm. um, to keep their dogs in, uh, well, contained dogs as that's well. That's right. Yeah. Now, that seems okay, a bit of sound, a bit of vibration. Well, what's the problem there? But the way they learn definitely that they should take notice of the sound and the vibration is if they go too far, they get a little zap. And that's where organisations like the RSPCA says, we don't really like the idea of those little electric zaps. I'm sure they don't like electric fences as well, but electric fences are much more severe on mm, a cow than sure. a, a collar, an electric shock on the collar. But again, I can imagine that doesn't feel that pleasant. But having said that, if I was a cow having a nice little slumber at three o'clock in the morning and a cattle dog came nipping at my heels, I don't think that sounds that pleasant either. I'm not trying to trivialise this whole electric shock, but that's, I suppose, where we're at. There's a way of directing these cattle. And I'm sure they probably don't need too many electric shocks before they finally say, I've learned that if I don't listen to that sound or take notice of that vibration, there's something unpleasant coming next. I'm going to go and take notice of that vibration or that sound. Yeah, I'll give you that. Cows um, probably will learn reasonably quickly. Sheep, though, I think probably wouldn't. Mm. Anyway, we're not doing this for sheep. This is just for cat, uh, just dairy for, cattle this at this, dairy at cattle for the time being. So yeah. there's one Tasmanian farmer that's got 1,300 dairy cows. He's been using that for some time, and he's finding it absolutely fantastic. He's feeling much healthier in himself because he can sleep in a bit more. <laughs> but the interesting part is that these products are banned in New South Wales, Victoria, the ACT and South Australia. That's under various Animal Welfare Acts. So we're not going to see them in some of those states straight away. Interesting in the same country that we're happy to see them in Tasmania, but not some other states and happy to see them across New Zealand. So it's interesting. There's been a bit of work being going for this type of technology for some time. Back in the 80s, there was some work being done. Back in the 2000s, early 2000s, CSIRO was trying to do some work on this. But We've progressed, and there's a few things we've got now that are much better. We've got GPS tracking much better, smaller technology, and also much more accurate. So that's the first thing that's good. Mm. Our battery life has gotten much better as well. And, of course, you've got smartphones, so you can mm. actually look where all your cattle are. You could actually say, oh, where are all my cows? Oh, look at that. They're all there. Even if you didn't want to give them electric shocks, you could know exactly where to go to bring those cows in if you felt like not using electric shocks. So we progressed with some of those. So back in the 80s and the 2000s, I don't think you could have done it in the same way that we've done it now. You've also got the ability with solar panels on these collars to keep batteries charged up. These aren't exclusively solar, but the solar keeps it topped up a little bit so you're not having to charge it as often. So a whole range of advantages we've got now, a whole range of technologies that have progressed that allow this to happen. It's just whether or not you'll get organisations like the RSPCA to say we're actually comfortable with the limited times they might be shocked before they learn from the overall experience. Look, there's a couple of reasons why I'm not a dairy farmer, Um, (laughs) but one of them is the three o'clock starts. I reckon if you could hit the snooze button on your alarm, and part of that is just bring the cows in as well, I reckon that'd be a real draw card. That's right. Well, you're right. So I, I, I was wondering why you weren't a dairy farmer. But now I know it's it was the a distinct start. lack of cows to start off with. <laughs> but um, yeah, three o'clock starts aren't good for me. And there's a bit of opportunity there for technology companies as well. So, for example, one of these companies charges $8.50 per month per cow. And that sounds like a reasonable income you could generate from this technology. But again, if I was a dairy farmer, to sleep in, I think it'd be worth the $8.50 yeah. per cow per month. <laughs> it's got to be more efficient overall. Surely that's got to be a big part of it. kick off with a story that's a bit on the nose. Now, listen to me tiptoe through this introduction like a prima ballerina. You've probably stepped into a public toilet before and noticed that at least one of the people before you have (coughs) left a message. 
and it kind of makes you gag a bit. Now, to be clear here, I'm not talking about floaties or a messy floor or seat. None of that. This is, a first, this is the first story in a family show, people, so bear with me. What I'm talking about happens to the best of us, and it's a tricky situation, and it's the reason you have a brush tucked away neatly against the back wall in the toilet. Ladies and gentlemen, in 2023, we need a toilet with inner walls slipperier than a Minnesota driveway on Christmas Eve. How is 3D printing going to get us out of that trouble, Matt? It is a really good point because we think a toilet's pretty slippery. Yeah. China. It's got to be. They've done well. Porcelain, yeah. Yeah, porcelain that's made out of there. That seems like it's fairly smooth, but you're right. Sometimes things still stick to that, even though it's a pretty smooth surface. And when you walk into a public toilet, and like I've got stainless steel toilets as well, and it still doesn't quite work. No. So you think, well, what could we do to make it even better? And of course, 3D printing seems to be the go with so many things at the moment, but By using 3D printing, you can come up with different materials that you might make that out of. So they're using laser sintering 3D printing technology. And by doing that and using that and building in a silicon oil to it, because again, one of the great things about 3D printing is you can mix things together. Mm. You've essentially got this surface that's very smooth, but more importantly, it goes through the entire surface. They've tried things in toilets before, like a Teflon coating, for example, Mm. and that wears off. And so then you just end up with a normal toilet. But by building it into the actual substance as you print it, then you've got something that's slippery all the way through. Now, I'm not sure why they chose this particular part to do an experiment with, but they chose some sandpaper to rub the toilet with a thousand times. <laughs> now, I reckon you've probably got too much fibre in your that's diet. Right. If or you're <laughs> eating too much sand. Just stop eating the sand, folks. I didn't think of the sand, maybe. <laughs> so they rubbed it over a thousand times with sandpaper and still found the surface was just as slippery because that silicon oil and the laser sintering have basically gone through the entire yeah, substance. Wow. Now, you might think, well, that's good. It saves an unpleasant experience at a public toilet or at home, for example, who didn't get the brush out and fix up the toilet. But there's something much more important at play here, and that is saving water. Yeah, right. If we can have a slipperier surface, then we don't need as much water to wash off whatever might be on the surface. That's clever. It is clever. So one of the areas that they'll use is, first of all, will be in public areas because they use a lot of water because they're being flushed a lot more than a home toilet. Mm. So they'll use that in public toilets. They'll use that in high-use areas. It might be train stations. It might be areas that are used a lot. And then I think we'll see a dramatic saving in water there. It'll eventually get down to the stage where your toilet in your home will be a different type of surface, a different type of substance. You're probably not going to rush out and replace a toilet. They're a bit clumsy to replace. They're mm. concreted in and that's all a bit hard to replace. It's not as easy as replacing some other parts of your house. So I, I see in new builds, this will be an important part of it, but it's also important in some countries that don't have as much water. And water yeah. is really a big thing. I don't think we realise at the moment, in a couple of decades' time, Water will be, forget about oil wars, yeah. there'll be water wars. So hopefully there won't be wars, but there'll be discussions, serious discussions over water. We and already have that with the Murray-Darling uh, base, well, don't we? Well, yeah. good point. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Had a lot of negotiations so amongst the states around that and some states saying we're not going to play ball with the federal government and all sorts of things there. So if we can reduce the amount of water we're using in the toilet and think about it, you don't think too much about the toilet. We've got our half flush and our full flush, mm. but you just do that. You don't say to everyone, right, if you do number ones, leave it there because we're going to save water. Most people go, oh, I don't like the look of that. I'm just going to flush it anyway. It also smells a bit too, doesn't it? Yeah, so, yeah. that's right. So you you got to flush anyway. If you can have less water needed, 
then you can have a flush system that uses less water. You might be able to use the half flush for number twos, for example. Yeah, yeah. So it's a big thing. And again, I know it doesn't sound like the most palatable subject. Hopefully no one's listening to this while they're eating breakfast. But hopefully just this sort of technology can make a difference around the world with that water saving. For sure. Midget Irony, um, we're going to kick off our episode today by marking the end of an era. Today we pay an homage to an old friend with one foot in the grave. It's time to farewell the 3G network, folks. Remember 3G? It was there when you sent your first photos through thin air. It was there when I got married. It was there when each of my sons were born. It saw some good times and it saw some bad times. And it did its job without complaint. And then 4G came along and things got a bit quieter for it. But it kept going. And then 5G came along. But like an old Datsun 240Z, it just kept going. But folks, it's time. I guess it's just the circle of life. Thanks for the memories, 3G. Matt, what have we got to say about that? Well, it is one of those things that I don't think we probably realise just how much of a difference 3G made to our daily lives now. So 3G was introduced back in Australia in April 2003, yeah. and it was released with a huge promise of incredible data speeds and being able to send ridiculously sized files and photos, as you say, over the air. And it probably delivered on a lot of that hype, and it would be fair to say that the smartphones that we enjoy today probably only were possible once we had data speeds that 3G delivered for us. Yeah, so 3G really opened the door and paved the way. And uh, it was probably marks the point where things changed the most, I guess. I think you're spot on. I think that's exactly right. And here we are. So the timeline is that the three carriers in Australia, Vodafone in December this year, December 2023, will switch off 3G. Telstra at the end of June 2024 will switch off 3G. And Optus in September 2024 will switch off their 3G network. So essentially, that'll be it, dead and gone. Now, there are some concerns from some people because there are times when you're traveling on regional roads and you're yeah. driving along and your phone drops out of 5G, then drops out of 4G. And then sometimes you see 3G come up. And you know that's come up because you try to send that beautiful photo you took on Instagram and it's just not going or it's taking forever. And you go, oh, yeah. what a joke this 3G network is. <laughs> but of course, the photos are much larger than they were when yeah. 3G was first introduced. So that's interesting. Now, why are they doing that? Why not just leave it ticking away there? You might need it for some regional coverage in some areas. Surely that's okay. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, that's an economic reason, but one is a crucial reason. It's probably not economical for a carrier to maintain a 3G network. Mm. It's like maintaining a telegraph system where you've still got people who come in once every six months as a novelty to send a telegram. Well, why would we maintain a network it's for that? It's like investing in that Datsun 250Z <laughs> as your family car. That's right, and keep and repairing it. That's right, and <laughs> having the tools for it and all the rest uh, of it. Yeah. So carriers aren't going to spend a lot of money, well, they don't want to spend a lot of money, put it that way, on maintaining the network. And given the fact that it's now 20 years old, around about that 20 to maybe 25 years seems to be the timeline of most of the G of networks, 2G, 3G, 4G, etc. That seems to be about the sort of timeline. But there is a much more important reason, of course, and we've got spectrum reallocation. So there's only so much spectrum, so many frequencies we can use to transmit our radio signals. And the 3G network primarily uses 850 megahertz and 2100 megahertz. If you have those two frequencies tied up with 3G, mm. then you can't have them used for 4G or 5G. Yeah, right. The usage of frequencies by 5G in particular is much more efficient than the usage by 3G. They have smaller 
time slices or time slices, not the right word, the to- smaller frequency chunks that are used by the 5G network. So essentially, you can actually fit more data, more users on a 5G version of the same frequency. Right. So that's important, obviously. One of the things that's really interesting, though, of course, and I do remember back to when they were switching off the analog network and it was initially going to be December 1999 they're going to switch off the analog network the amps network and they end up going out to September 2000 and that was because they didn't have the same coverage with the new digital networks that were around at the time so they had to extend that just a little bit and in fact CDMA was introduced as a bit of a stopgap measure it was probably the shortest of just about any of the technologies that I can remember CDMA was introduced in September 1999 for regional users that needed the coverage of analog with some of the features of digital. So it wasn't quite as good mm. as digital, but it had some of that extra coverage. But it only lasted from September 99 to July 2012. But more importantly, when analog was turned off in September 2000, then it could fill that gap there. The really interesting part is that the three carriers have had or have made different promises about their coverage under 4G and 5G once the 3G network is switched off. Right. Will the government step in and make them extend that? Well, I think there's been enough warnings around already that you've got to get these other networks right before you go and switch off the 3G network. Mm. So I think the 3G networks will switch off. And then that brings me to another point. And this is, I apologize for this being such a long story, this no, one no, here, but no, it is no, a no, big okay. issue. Very interesting. There are some organizations out there and different devices out there that are using 3G. You may not even be aware of it. Yeah, so, for example, right. alarm systems. When you've got your arming and disarming of an alarm system, it sends us tiny little minuscule bit of data. So often those are 3G. When the alarm signal goes, so someone breaks into your house or your business and it sends an alarm signal, back in the old days it would use a telephone dialer, but of course people just turn up outside the house and cut the phone lines and then broke in, so they changed that over to be a mobile phone dialer, but 3G often those use because again it doesn't need to send much data. So is there any uh, capacity to maybe turn it off for a couple of months and then turn it back on again just to see... (laughs) See what stopped working. (laughs) See what stopped working, see if anyone had any major problems or... Well... They're probably, uh, no, I think is is the simple answer to that. I don't think they'll do that. But I'm a bit more worried about, so there's alarms, but I'm a bit more worried about some medical equipment, emergency alert systems. Some medical alerts that people put around their neck have got a base station, so around their home, mm-hmm. they press the button and it, it rings out from there. But that was a bit limiting for some people, so they put in 3G versions of those. And the reason they'd use 3G for those is because the 3G hardware is cheap. It's very old, yeah. so... It, it's much cheaper, and again, not much data is sent. You press the button, and it says, Matthew Dickerson's fallen over, and he's at this location. So you're not sending a lot of data there. You're not sending photos of Matthew Dickerson falling over. So you've got those type of things. You've also got older FPOS terminals, flood monitoring systems, traffic light controls, agricultural management tools. This is a really important one. Pet trackers. So right. you might lose where your pet is when 3G gets switched off. Vehicle trackers. In fact, the first Tesla that I bought, the Tesla Model S, when I bought that... It had 3G in it, and I thought that was interesting that a very modern car still only had 3G, but again, it wasn't using a lot of data for that. Now, there is a, an upgrade module, so if you, I don't have that car anymore, but if you had one of those cars, you could upgrade the module to 4G, which makes sense. But that's a bigger concern for me. The reception range, hopefully the carriers get it right. But all of these other devices, so I suppose the, the message here is go and check anything you've got 
that connects to the outside world and you may not even be aware of how it does. <laughs> Go and check even the stuff you're not aware of. Yeah, that's right. The stuff you don't know about, check that. <laughs> <laughs> so on the 1st of October this year, if um, the wheels start falling off everything and everyone's going crazy and it just seems like we've gone into the purge, um, <laughs> then uh, it could be because 3G's been flicked off. And here's the other challenging part. You might have an FPOS terminal with your bank. You don't know who the carrier is you could probably take off the back and have a look at the sim card but maybe someone got the sim card built in as part of the mm. actual device itself mm. so you don't know so if it starts stops working in december this year sorry december this year is vodafone so if it stops working in december this year or june next year or september next year then that might be the carrier depending on which carrier your particular company is using and that that's the same with all of those whether it be your car or your alarm system whoever you don't, you're not the one normally that goes out and does that connection. You don't mm. go into a phone store and connect a SIM card and then come home and put it in your alarm system. It's all part of the device that was bought at some stage. So it's going yeah, to be interesting. Right. Yeah. Okay, so the message is um, start stashing canned food and toilet paper. <laughs> That's right. And make sure you've got some physical locks on your house rather yeah, than right. on your alarm system. decade is going to be about our cleverness in gathering energy from unlikely places. Even if you love cold fire power and you feel like the future is still locked in the industrial revolution technology, it takes a very long time to get one of those plants up and running. So we might as well seek quicker, easier and perhaps greener options, do you think? For those on the land with farm dams, French engineers have worked out a way you can power your house with the water from your dams, at least for a couple of hours a day at least. Matt, how is this going to work? I've actually done some numbers, and I don't want to bore people with too many numbers, but I'll throw some numbers out we'll there in a minute. We love numbers. Yeah, good, good. Okay, well, I'll throw lots out there. Okay. And it's actually quite fascinating how much energy, how much power we can store using water, or something with weight, but water's fairly convenient, mm. and a bit of height about it. The good thing about water is it's quite heavy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, And for my calculations, I've used approximately one litre of water for one kilogram of mass, so yeah. which is about right. Not perfectly right, but it, it's enough for it. Now, we're pretty familiar with hydroelectricity, and that goes back a long time. Way back to 1878, I found an example. Lord Armstrong used some hydro to illuminate an arc lamp in his art gallery. Wow. So we've known about... But we've been using falling water for ages before that with uh, with milling. Well, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely right. So we understood the idea that falling water was good to do things to turn to things. To turn wheels, yeah. That's right. And so then we worked out about hydroelectricity. The first commercial hydro plant was in the USA in 1882. That was the first one in the world. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be in the USA. And of course, I remember seeing information about Niagara Falls many years ago, and that was 1895. And of course, that involved people like Nikola Tesla and George mm-hmm. Westinghouse. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. people are very familiar with that. And let's face it, if you got some falling water, there's some <laughs> severe volumes and velocity of falling water you've got there with the Niagara Falls. So that all makes sense. But then obviously people started thinking about storing energy because it's not easy to store power. No. Storing it with water. And when I say storing it with water, the obvious thing is you pump it up to higher levels and then let it fall when you need that water. Yeah, you're just using gravitational potential energy. Exactly right. And turning it into kinetic energy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So the first example I found of pumped hydro was around the 1940s. There were some examples, limited examples before that, but after Second World War, you started to see a few examples of pumped hydro. Now, the basic equation that people use with pumped hydro, if they're building a large pumped hydro area, then they say that if you've got a gigalitre of water, 
mm. and it falls from a height of 400 metres, then you can store about a gigawatt hour of power. And those oh, numbers are about... That's a amount. Yeah. It is, that's right. Now, those numbers are about right at about 92% efficiency. And pumped hydro normally is fairly efficient. I would normally say you'd expect at least 90%. But then you start to break it down a bit, and that's a big chunk. If you've got a big chunk of water and you've got a fair distance to fall... Mm. Researchers at the University of New South Wales have started doing some work in farms across the nation. Now, the first example, the, the French example you mentioned there, mm. was in a building. So they were capturing water at the top of the building, and then they said, well, if we let that water fall to the bottom of the building, maybe we could generate some electricity. And they basically produced a little three and a half kilowatt hour battery out of water that was stored at the top of the building, captured with rain initially, mm. and then rather than let it go out stormwater drained, they caught it there and then had another well or reservoir at the bottom of the building and let it fall there. The really th simple thing I love about this is the amount of energy you store is a very simple equation. You take the mass that you've got, you multiply it by the height, and then there's some other components there, but I've broken it down to basically give you a constant. So normally you'd have gravity in there, you'd have mm -hmm. a conversion from joules to kilowatt hours, but if you just take the mass in kilograms, multiply by the height in metres, divide that by 366972... <laughs> right. Remember that, folks. That's right. That's a, a little constant that I've created out of these other calculations yeah, yeah. there. That gives you the amount of kilowatt hours that you can store with that bit of weight, that bit of mass, so a bit of water in this particular example. So what I did then was I looked at some examples across this University of New South Wales research. They were typically looking for pairs of dams. Now, they wanted two mm. dams that were within about 500 metres of each other. That makes sense. You don't want yeah, to build yeah. a huge pipeline on your farm. So 500 metres, they wanted a land slope of at least 17%. Now, at that slope, you get a drop of 84 metres over that 500 metres, okay? So you take those two. Now, when I did those calculations, one megalitre of water, which is not a huge dam, mm. one megalitre of water could store 180 kilowatts, kilowatt hours sorry, of energy that's over that drop of 84 metres. So again, it doesn't matter how far it goes, the, the drop is the important part there. Yeah. And I did that calculation only at 80% efficiency. So what the University of New South Wales found was a suitable dams for storing power, there's 30,000 pairs of dams out there with a minimum energy storage of 30 kilowatt hours. Mm. So that's not a big dam. That's two dams, obviously. And that's not taking that whole, you're not emptying that dam completely because obviously you probably want some water in that dam to run your normal farm operations. For sure. But using a bit of headroom in that dam, it's not a lot of water. It's not a lot of mass that you've got over not a large drop and suddenly you've got this storage of power. So what I love about that is it's distributed power. There's some complications with building a pipeline, putting a generator in, etc. But that's probably better than a battery because a battery is expensive to manufacture. Yeah. You've got to mine resources to manufacture that. Yeah. And then a battery loses energy roughly one and a half to 2% per month of whatever's stored in there. And that's without it doing anything. So just having the battery fully charged, I'll have it there for when I need it. You go to use it four or five months later, it's lost about that, let's say, one and a half to 2% per month just by sitting there doing nothing. And then it's got a finite life in... 15 years, 20 years' time, it might get to the stage where you go, well, that battery's not storing much power now. Storing power with water, yeah. that's the really exciting thing. Yeah. So when you start to do the numbers, it's pretty attractive. Breaking down all those farms across the land, are you really going to put them back into the grid to store power? Maybe not, but you might use it for your own needs. You might use it for you a microgrid. for surely. Well, that's right. Well, and that's the, the interesting part. 
an average household in Australia uses about 20 kilowatt hours of power per day. So if you had 30 kilowatt hours of storage, well, you've got a day and a half of storage. If mm. the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining, then you've got that ability to store that. The bottom line from all of this is we're going to see different ways to solve our energy problems. Diversification, yes. Diversification. So lots of little dams, and, and they could apply in buildings as well. The next time I'm building a high-rise, surely I'd put some sort of storage cap- capacity in there of water up high and then water down low, and there's my battery. So yeah. there's all these different solutions we're coming up with. But I, I love the fact that we've got these dams out there now, building a pipeline between the two, putting a generator in, a pump and a generator, effectively the same device, that seems like a pretty attractive thing to do. So quite well, I wonder how many high-rise buildings right now have the capacity to have some sort of storage put on top of them just for this purpose. Well, any of them probably, but again, you'd want to look at the engineering initially. Yeah. Have you built this to have an extra... Just so much weight. That's right, at yeah. the very top. Obviously, yeah. you, you figure that when you're designing that building, the amount of mass it needs to support is less as it goes up. Yeah. So then you go and chuck a few tonnes of water at the top <laughs> yeah. of it, then you might throw out those calculations. But ultimately, new designs, I think, would make sense to, to have this sort of technology built in. But it doesn't need to be a big drop. So you could actually have some of that water at a lower level as well and yeah. store some energy there. And again, if you can store it close to where you need to use it, that seems like a very attractive proposition. So overall, I, I found that fascinating. I actually found, when I did the numbers, I found the amount of power that you can store from not a large amount of water to be quite fascinating. Big ideas coming out you thick and fast, folks. Congratulations, folks. Your patience has paid off. Good things come to those who wait. It's been a year since we last broke news of the new release of the emojis. So strap yourself in. Matt has all the latest emoji news for you. I do like to put a lime in my sparkling water sometimes. Lemon's okay, but just every now and again... I like to put a lime in my sparkling water. Yep, mixing it up. Mixing it up. It's a spice of life. And finally, finally, I can now send an emoji to someone, I don't know, at the bar maybe, to one of my kids, (laughs) to say, put a lime in my sparkling water via an emoji because, hello, (laughs) we've got a lime emoji. Hang on, as opposed to a lemon emoji. Well, we've always had had the lemon emoji for a long time. Yeah, sorry, we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we haven't had a lime emoji. I can't believe... Before this latest group has been approved, we had in criminal. He's <laughs> criminal. We had three thousand six hundred and sixty-four emojis. Out of those three thousand six hundred sixty-four, there was not a lime emoji. What were they thinking, mm. James? Yeah, surely that would have been Goodness higher priority. Me. But in the new list, including Lime, we've now got 3,782. But thankfully, someone has seen the issue that I've had. <laughs> And the lime emoji has been added. So we've got that now. We've got a few other ones added. A brown mushroom. So white mushroom, fine. That's been there. But the brown mushroom hasn't been there. Now that could be important for some expert cooks out there maybe that you need to make sure it's the brown versus the white. But the other one that I do like, or the other group, is a group of direction-specific people emojis. So not just person walking. Ah, person walking to the left right. or person walking to the right. Yeah, okay. Person running to the left or person running to the right. In the past, there was the flexibility for the people who created the emojis. When it had person walking, they could go, hmm, do I want them to walk left or right? 
now you've got specific directions where it will be a person walking left. Can, can they? Is there? There's not one to walking towards. Is there or walking away from? I don't remember seeing those ones. That uh, might be in the next well, one. Look you could suggest that. Wait those. up, folks. <laughs> Stay tuned um, for this time next year. So the the issue is, even though we're breaking the news now, the emoji list has been approved. So this is the 15.1 version of the emojis. It goes alongside the Unicode standard version 15.1. Uh-huh. This is done, and I know you love this part in particular, the Unicode Consortium. The fact that there is a group out there (laughs) that consists of representatives from a whole range of different organisations that says yes to that group of emojis. Yeah, you need someone there who's discerning. And maybe more than just one person, you need a number of I know, there's a group. You couldn't possibly have it done by one person. That's what a consortium is, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) That's right. And the consortium includes some big tech companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft. Many people, until they listened to Tech Talk, thought that it was just up to the vendor. So Mm. Apple decides they want a person walking left, they just create an emoji. No, no, no. You've got to have it approved by the Unicode Consortium. And then once it's approved, the different companies that create the actual images that you'll see, for example, Apple or Google, they will actually create an emoji based on their interpretation of that. So the emoji on an iPhone might be different to the emoji on an Android phone, Uh but it will have to be representing the same thing. So the person walking left has to be obvious as the person Uh walking left, but it could be your own individual company's interpretation. But yeah, they still all agreed on the line. They still all agreed on the lime, but maybe what form it comes in will be up to Apple or whoever else. Yes, exactly right. So we've got new emojis, very exciting. Typically, it takes several months, maybe even six months before you'll see those on your devices. Some companies, maybe by the end of the year, you'll see some, but probably more February, March next year before you'll see them in common. So I know people are rush out right now. Add that lime emoji to their order for sparkling water. Uh-huh. You can't probably do it you quite yet. You have to type it out. You have to type it out. I know. What are we coming <laughs> at, James? How can it be? So these uh, these updates, as I said, every year. If you've got some ideas for emoji that is not amongst the three thousand seven hundred and eighty-two already, right? You can send a suggestion into the Unicode Consortium and say. Oh, what wow. are you thinking? Why haven't you got an emoji that says whatever it might be? Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Emoji update complete. Get on it, kids. Smart watches, smart white goods, smart cars, and now smart garbage trucks. In a clever move to kill two birds with one stone, a Queensland council will collect domestic rubbish and all the while survey the streets for maintenance needs. Matt, I had never even considered how a local council actually checked on its roads before, but I assume it took a lot of effort, and um, this makes every bit of sense. One of the things I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to drop one of my standard jokes. When I talk about Queenslanders in summer, because they don't have daylight saving, of course, I normally say, yep, Queensland, one hour and 10 years behind New South Wales. And in this case, I think Queensland are in front of New South Wales. And that hurts me to say that. I'm sure (laughs) I said, did I really say that? And this is, as you say, very clever. Is that a hint of maroon I see on your shirt there? (laughs) No, not going that far, surely not. But in this scenario, it makes a lot of sense. Gauging the standard or the the level of your roads, the potholes that are on your roads and being proactive to fix them, it's a big job for a council Mm. to get around and look at all those roads on a regular basis, relying on reports coming in from the public, all sorts of things, trying to triage all that, where do we go first, which potholes need the most work, do we need to do something more than just fixing potholes? And your garbage trucks are pretty much going in, within the city limits, going over every road Within that city All limit. The time on a weekly basis. Every week, every single week, you go, well, I know that garbage truck's going to be on Smith Street. 
So why not put some cameras on there? Why not then feed them back into the cloud, add some AI to then get a list of the potholes that you should be going and looking at? And that's exactly it's what they're doing. It's just so clever. It is so it's oh, I hate it. Money Stop well it. It's Queenslanders, James. It's Queenslanders. <laughs> it's lazy, is what it is. <laughs> that's right. Let's look at the negatives of this. So the thing I like about it is prevention is better than cure. If you can see those potholes, and again, when you've got this constant process where you're getting image of these every week, when you can see those potholes that are a small size, so one week, oh, right, that was a 10-centimetre pothole. Next week, it's a 30-centimetre. Next week, it's a three-metre pothole. Mm. Right, we can work out exactly when we should go and address that before it gets too large. Mm -hmm. And then, surely, you can get to the stage where you can actually get more potholes fixed and get better quality of roads. They found so far that the number of detected road defects has doubled. Now you think, well, that's terrible. The roads are in terrible condition, but it's just a matter of the fact... Better at picking them up. Better at picking them up. That's exactly right. But what they've found most importantly already is that the repair rate has improved by 15% because they're able to get to the ones that need it the most, able Uh to get to them earlier. And this has only been running for a short period of time. Yeah, Yeah, once I, I think once you keep working on AI and it's seeing the condition of all of these potholes on a weekly basis, I think AI is going to be able to say, you need to hit potholes when they're at this level, and here are the ones today. And literally, you could get a report through on a daily basis to tell the team, here's where to go out. Now, I don't think they're at this level yet, but it probably won't be that far away, where they'll say, here's the potholes you need to hit, and here's the route you should go on to be most efficient in your vehicles that are driving out to fix those potholes, because you don't want to go to one side of town and then back to the other side of the town. You want to go in some sort of continuous loop where you're fixing those. The potential, just it's mind-blowing. But the guys on the asphalt truck, they're not going to be real happy about this, are they? (laughs) They're going to have less work to do (laughs) long term. Well, they probably get some people that aren't happy about it. They're going to be getting taps on the shoulder all the time. And saying, come and fix my pothole. Yeah. Well, yeah. they probably get it now. Maybe. Yeah, probably can, do. Can yeah, you imagine yeah. if, if you were one of those guys that did that and you're out at a party on a Saturday night? Oh, James, <laughs> can you just stuck up my street? There's a terrible pothole up there. Oh, we've got to go and listen to this AI thing. No, just stuck up my street. It's the worst one anywhere. <laughs> but I think one of the things that's really good about this is this is early stages. This is early days. Mm. Surely, as we go down the track with this, we'll get AI getting much cleverer. It'll get that refined level of when is the best time to hit a pothole and then you'll get an improved repair rate and so the road standard will keep increasing so it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy as you get better at repairing them as you increase the repair rate then there's less potholes to repair because they're being repaired earlier so your road and condition and we're going to be seeing um, asphalt snorkels on these garbage trucks as well just dropping a little bit of asphalt uh, as they go maybe maybe, maybe. that'll be next multi-purpose why not yeah that sounds great well then <laughs> then the guys on the asphalt trucks might be so happy Way back in 1895, George Westinghouse built the first large-scale power plant at Niagara Falls on the US-Canadian border and began feeding delicious AC electricity to the hungry people of New York. In doing so, he claimed victory in the War of Currents against his rival Thomas Edison. Now, in 2023, work has begun on a new power line running from Canada to the Big Apple to power millions of homes with renewable energy. Matt, what are the details on this? Well, the exciting part about this, and I want to get into a little bit of detail on this one, is it's underground. So the cable that's going to feed Ah. renewable power from Canada down to New York City, 546-kilometre transmission line, all underground. When they were launching it, they said, you won't see this cable anywhere except where it starts and where it ends. There's waterways, there's rivers, there's roads, a whole lot, 
all underground the whole way. Yeah, right. Now, this is a bit of an issue because we're developing our grid here in Australia. We're getting renewable energy generated in different places compared to where we used to have coal-fired power stations. So we are doing a bit of work, and New South Wales in particular has got a state-owned organisation called Energy Co that's tasked with the force of building some new 500-kilovolt transmission lines and 330-kilovolt transmission lines. And I've sat in some of these meetings when there have been discussions with the with Energy Co representatives and with some farmers or some community members and they're horrified about the idea of these huge towers. We're talking maybe 70 metres tall for some mm. of these towers and obviously conductors that are running along those. What can you do below that? Well, you can't farm necessarily underneath it. There's certain conditions or restrictions. The farmers will get paid some money for these things being on their property, but mm. some farmers say, well, I'd just rather my property the way it is. Thanks very much. So we're doing that and we've done overhead power lines pretty much in this country for any reasonable length. A couple of years ago down in Victoria, there was a group down there who were very unhappy about overhead power lines. So they did some research about underground power lines and they found that it wasn't as expensive as they said, Mm. but it was still a bit expensive. Mm. But this project now, I just see this is opening up some opportunities. So how far is it going? 546 kilometres. So it's a fair length. Yeah, that's a good distance. That is. Now they're doing this for $6 billion. That's $6 billion US dollars. So it's not cheap, but even when you do overhead power lines, it's not Mm. cheap to do them. And again... It's similar in terms of the spec. So they're, they're delivering 1.25 gigawatts of power down in New York, and they're doing it with a 400 kilovolt line. Now, of course, when you start to go underground, you get a few restrictions compared to overhead. So overhead power lines, for a start, you don't need any sheath over them. They're not mm. protected. They're just right. using air as an insulator. If you look up at power lines, you see that they're far enough apart that they're not arcing. And if you get some large wind sometimes and things start blowing around, you might see a spark between them because each of those conductors has got nothing over it. So the mm. cable is fairly cheap. Well, I'm sure it's still expensive, but relatively cheap compared to putting sheathing over it. And then you've got the ability for the heat that's generated to get away. So you've got mm. open air, you've got wind flowing over it. So you've got those two huge advantages. You do get a little bit of heat loss. Obviously, we go very high voltage. So very low current, which means very low heat loss or a minimal heat loss. That's right. And it's uh, to the square, sorry, it's to the inverse of the square. So as you increase your voltage, mm. the amount of power loss you get, which would be realised as heat, is to the inverse of the square. So when you double your voltage, you quadruple your or, or you negatively quadruple the heat loss, if that makes sense. So, because it's over the square yeah, of the voltage. Yeah, P equals I squared R. And so, yeah, we can do the maths on that a little bit later. Yeah, that's right. P equals I squared R, V equals IR, P equals IV. You put all those together and you yep. get inverse square, I think. Yes. So, that's from roughly. So, essentially, you want these very high voltage. That's great. When you put them underground, then you don't get the ability for the heat to be dissipated as easily because it's underground for a start. So you end up putting bigger conductors underground, so you generate less heat in that. Mm -hmm. And then you also have that bit of a problem that you can't just whack in some open cables underground. You've got to actually put some sort of insulation over them, so the cable is a bit more expensive. Having said all that, though, obviously they've been able to do it in the US. And again, $6 billion is not the most ridiculous price tag. I know it sounds expensive, but for a 546-kilometre transmission line, mm. it doesn't seem like the most ridiculous price well, tag for that. It's going to power literally millions of homes. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And be a, a big income earner for um, Canada as well, I'd expect. This is a great thing. And this is where Australia is in a great spot 
we can generate a lot of renewable power. And if we can get that to other countries, and we've got mm. some countries to the north of us that are fairly close, undersea power cables, which we know we've talked about before. So there's some potential there, some opportunities. But what I'm most excited about is the whole fact that this is going underground. And I just wonder, some of those farmers out there, now I don't know the limitations, I would assume you're burying it fairly deep, maybe mm. a metre or more deep. So you're burying it deep enough that when you're out there with your plough and you're, you're putting some <laughs> crop in, you're not affecting these power lines underneath, maybe there still are some conditions over not being able to do things over the top of them. You wouldn't be able to build something over the top, obviously, but maybe if you're a farmer, you couldn't still do things over the top. So maybe it's not as good as I think, but it does sound quite interesting. And we see it around streets where you see more power cables put underground around streets rather yeah. than having all the power cables hanging above streets. It looks tidier, looks nicer. Again, you're doing much lower voltage, much shorter runs there, so it's a bit different to high voltage. These are all DC, of course, as well. We've talked about that before, that some of these yeah. long runs now are all going DC. Very interesting about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah so a whole range of things. But I, again, I'm excited by the fact that it's underground. I'll be interested to see how it goes, what issues they have there, but I think absolutely there are some implications for Australia in this as we start to roll out our renewable energy grid here. celebrity is that when you're really well known, people just expect to see your face out and about endorsing products and, and they ask no further questions. For the marketers, that face can be worth loads and loads of dollars and for the celebrity, not only is their income, but also a direct association between them and the product. So in this new age of AI generated images, there's a massive concern for celebrities about stealing their images for advertising and it's gotten Tom Hanks's knickers in a knot. Just now, hasn't it, Matt? If I said movies like Saving Private Ryan or Forrest Gump, Da Vinci Code, Castaway, Apollo 13, Philadelphia maybe, mm. people probably out amongst all of those, they'd probably be able to recognise somewhere in there that Tom Hanks, the name Tom Hanks might come up if you said a few of those names. Mm. He's been involved with some pretty big movies over the years. He's got to be the A-list, uh, on top of the A-list, sure. He has, surely. So you, you throw a few and of those a really names. nice guy, apparently. Apparently, yeah. I haven't talked to him for a while, but yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> he's Let also, me look that up on my phone. <laughs> he's also produced some movies. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you think out of all of those movies, some of those hits there, he's probably been able to bank a couple of dollars. I mean, the mm. estimation might be 400 mil he might mm. be worth. So it does seem strange that you've had that level of success, you've got a few dollars in the bank, enough to get you by at least till next Sunday, mm. to then say, oh, you know what, I need to go out and use my face to sell dental insurance because that's what I need well, to top up the bank account. In that case, it'd have to be something he really believed in. Maybe. maybe. Yeah. So dental it's insurance. less about the money and more about making sure people get onto this dental insurance. And maybe he has a passion for dental insurance. Yes, could be. <laughs> or maybe, as Tom has come out and said, this is just deep fake technology. So that's exactly what's happened. They've used Tom Hanks. Why not? Just looking at some of those movies, there's going to be very few people in the world who don't recognize Tom Hanks. Mm. And so if Tom Hanks tells me that this is the dental insurance plan to be on, mm. well, why not? I trust Tom Hanks. He seems like a very genuine guy. Mm. But again, this is the problem. And, and so Tom's come out and said, if you see some dental insurance ads, he's done well not to mention the company because he doesn't want to give them more advertising. Yeah. If you see dental insurance ads, it's not me, it's a deep fake. And then use that to really talk about the issues that he has around the scared process going forward for many people about where AI is going, 
where deep fakes going. See, that's the thing. If he takes them to court, he's giving them publicity that they're probably looking for. I was wondering, you know, surely they, they would have known that there was going to be legal action there. Well, possibly. But, and again, I don't know that I would if I was Tom worry about it. I think what he's done is probably a good approach to say, yeah. this is not me. I'm not going to mention the company. If you see Dell Insurance says it's not me, they're being very dodgy. In fact, that should discredit that company more than mm. anything else because they've done something without Tom's mission. And Tom's almost like the the kid next door, the boy next door that you yeah. trust and have faith in. So, hey, you've done the wrong thing by Tom. We don't yeah. like you anymore. <laughs> That's it. It's going to work against them. But uh, the um, the actor, uh, I think it's Anil Kapoor, is that how you pronounce it? Oh, could he, he was in Slumdog Millionaire, but he actually oh, right. yeah, yeah, he okay. took them to court for using his image and basically went through a process there where he sued uh, whoever it was, whatever company it was, for using his image without permission in some form of deep fake. Mm. And you see other ones. I've seen Bear Grylls. I've seen Elon Musk. I've seen mm. various other deep fakes. Well, I assume they were deep fakes because they were saying silly things that maybe you wouldn't expect some of those people to say. So this is an issue. And so Tom's really trying to highlight that. The Hollywood strike is highlighting this issue. The Writers Guild of America strike, which I think they've now reached an agreement with. But all of these uh, concerns from people, whether it be actors, whether it be writers, about this whole concept of deep fakes mm. and how convincing it is. I mean, when we did our 100th episode, we did a little bit of deep faking for yeah, our that, voices. That me. Yeah, and apart from the American accent, as you pointed out at the time, it was pretty close to our voices. Yeah. And that was with five minutes with a free service. I mean, if you've got someone who's serious about it, it's a bit of a concern. So now you've got to actually go that step further and say, does it really seem like Tom Hanks would be saying that? There was a, a German tabloid that did a fabricated interview with Michael Schumacher. Now, Michael Schumacher, seven times F1 champion. He's in a, well, we don't really know, but we know he had a brain injury from a skiing accident. Presumably he's in a coma. His family's been very private about his recovery, if there is a recovery there. But this German tabloid did a fabricated interview. They didn't say that. They said interview with Michael Schumacher. Had the interview published at the end, it said this interview was generated by AI. Now, their family is suing that particular tabloid. But again, if you saw an interview with Michael Schumacher, wow, we haven't heard from him for yeah. all those years. Gee, I'll go and pick up that magazine and read that. And again, this is where people are going. There, there just seems to be no common decency anymore, James. Am I getting too old now? I'm talking about common decency. I, oh, that makes me sweat a little bit too. Yes, common decency, um, just respect for a fellow man. Yeah. Just, yeah, just that's gone out the window. None of that at all. So all of these things there, I suppose it's just one of those things. You've got to be a bit sceptical. You've got to question it. You've got to say, does that seem real? Does that seem legitimate? Mm. Just do the right thing, please, people out there. Question everything. lot of myths that surround lithium-ion batteries. Now that they've become so popular in so many different applications, it seems that the stories about them are also growing exponentially as well. Matt, he, Matt is here to hopefully set the record straight on a number of counts and maybe even give a tip or two for prolonging the life of your lithium battery. Now I want to just, I'm going to talk about some tips around charging batteries, but I want to say to people, don't get too focused, don't get too anal about it, because I'm going to give you some tips about prolonging the life of your battery. Mm. And if you do these things, they will prolong the life of your battery, but they can also be a bit clumsy, a bit inconvenient to do that. So mm. I always say to people, do things that are convenient. And if it's also convenient to do this, then go yeah, down that path. Well. Yeah. And it has been confusing because we've changed over the years. And let's go back a little bit. And when I say a little bit, let's go back a lot. The first rechargeable battery was patented, invented in 1859. So we're going back a fair while that was a battery that Gaston Plante, a 
French physicist. Did I say that with a French mm-hmm. accent? Yeah, that sounded good enough for me. That's right. So that was... South side of the... Sorry. Just <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that was the first rechargeable battery. It was lead-acid. Now, lead-acid batteries, which we still use today yeah. in terms of car batteries, are still lead-acid, but lead-acid batteries typically work best when you keep them fully charged-ish. So mm. you don't normally flatten the battery in your car when you're starting your car. They're That's typically right. used to start the car, and then it's trickling away there from your alternator. So they work best when they're fully charged most of the time, mm. which doesn't sound like a great thing for a mobile phone battery. But, of course, the first mobile phone batteries that came out were exactly that, lead-acid batteries. Yeah. So that was one of the things that you didn't really want to Hence the shoulder it. holster. Was that, <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that's exactly right. You had those big <laughs> things over your shoulder, the big bag phones, and you they came, I know the bag phones we used to sell, came with a couple of those batteries, and they were big, they were sealed lead-acid, yeah. but they were big things, and you did use them as convenience. But I remember saying to clients at the time, you got two batteries there, so if you can get through half a day with one, don't worry about it till it's dead flat, just swap it over to the other battery. So if you used half of each, mm. that was better than using one fully. Of course, then we got nickel-cadmium batteries. Mm. Now, they were initially invented back in 1899, but they didn't start getting on a mobile phone until about 1980 or 1980s, and they were better. So lead-acid had a energy density of about 30 to 40 watt-hours per kilogram. Nickel-cadmium jumped up to 40 to 60 watt-hours, so that was better. You could flatten them. In fact, they were best used when fully flattened. So unlike yeah, lead-acid, right. you should, when you're using a nickel-cadmium, go all the way to dead, even if you got halfway through the day and it was half flat, and you think, I could just stick it on the charger. Now, don't. No, no. no let it go all the way to yeah, dead flat. So is there an issue with uh, battery memory there and that they, um, if you didn't take it all the way to just about flat, then uh, you wouldn't get as much of a charge for the next time? That's exactly right. So you had that thing called memory effect. Yeah. And it was a very strange process where if you, let's say, you used it consistently – your day used up half your battery. So then you put on the battery uh, on the charger at night and then the next day you did the same and you kept doing that. The time that you did need to go mm. all the way, it would get to half and it would have a memory, in inverted commas, mm. that would go, huh, I'm normally charged here. I guess I must be flat. Mm. Now, of course, it doesn't have memory. It doesn't have intelligence. But that was the chemical process that occurred in there. So I've had people ask me uh, questions about the Tesla and saying, oh, does it have a battery memory? Like, you know, do you have to run it all the way down to flat? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that wouldn't be practical. It it? wouldn't be. No, I keep driving around the block. What are you doing, darling? (laughs) Just running the battery flat before I can charge it. So nickel metal hydride was similar. They had better energy density, they jumped to about 60 to 120 watt-hours per kilogram, and they were less susceptible to the memory effect, but they still had their little bit. And we actually had the stage in our business, we bought this incredibly expensive machine, I can't remember how much it was, but it seemed like it was a lot of money, a couple of thousand dollars maybe, and it used to recondition batteries. We used to charge people $50 to recondition batteries. So they'd bring in their battery, mainly the nickel cabin, sometimes the nickel metal hydride, and we put it on this thing and it would literally go through some cycles, charge, flatten, charge, flatten, charge, flatten. Mm. And then there you go, sir, there's your battery. Oh, look at that, it's wonderful now. It hasn't got the memory effect anymore. So we thought this was all okay. We thought this was all acceptable. We lived with it. And then finally someone came along with lithium-based battery, so lithium-ion, lithium-polymer, but lithium-ion is probably the most common one. So two great things about lithium-ion. The first thing is, Again, energy density jumped up to 150 to 250 watt-hours per kilogram. So just to remind you, the very first ones were 30 to 40. So big jump there in terms of energy density. But the good part about these was you didn't get the memory effect, but you can't have everything, can you? So rather than getting memory effect, lithium-ion batteries work best if you don't fully charge them 
and don't fully flatten them. So you'll get more life out of your battery if you keep it between about 20 to 80%. Yeah, right. So that's a bit inconvenient. And that's what I say to people. Don't sit there and wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning while you're charging overnight and go, oh, it's at 80% now. I'll take it off the charger. Oh, good, I can go back to sleep now. If it's convenient to charge it overnight, do so. But if it's convenient to charge it to 80% and keep in mind that some phones now have got options in there to say only charge to 80%. Mm. But I would only do that if you're not a heavy user of your phone because you don't want to do that. So I'll get extra three months out of my battery and then get to five o'clock each afternoon and go, oh, my battery's flat now. If only I could charge it to 100%. And the same with the 20%. If you get to 20%, don't turn it off because I'm at 20% now. If you need to use it past 20%, go for it. But if you want to maximize it, a couple of tips here. One, 20 to 80%. Drain to 20 or, or above, like 30 or 40%, and then charge to 80, that's fine. The other one is temperature. If you can keep it between 0 and 35 degrees Celsius, which you think, that's fine. In a house, in an office, I'm probably not going to be above 35. But yeah. when you go outside, sitting it on the dash of your car, for example, yeah. eh, not a great idea. Probably yeah. going to get above 35. In particular, when you're charging it, you want to keep it below 35 degrees Celsius because it generates its own heat. So having some sort of airflow around it while it's charging is a good idea. Not sticking in the bottom drawer for it to generate some heat and then get no airflow around it to charge up or to, to actually not you know, charge up or getting hot while it's charging. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I know it sounds like an advertising, but using some of the chargers that either the manufacturers make or some reputable chargers, that's probably the main reason we see some of these fires pop up every now and again, mm. is that someone's bought a cheap charger they saw at some guy sitting on a corner and, well, it's cheap, what could go wrong? And yeah. of course, they're not putting the proper charge in or more than likely they're probably not turning their charging off, not trickle charging at the end. They're probably just going at full rate till it gets to 100%. And then who knows what happens after that. And that's where you start those fires sometimes, very rarely, I must admit. But when they do overheat, and that's probably more to do with the charger than anything else. So if you do that, you'll probably get, I mean, Apple, for example, say you'll get 500 full charge cycles. But there was some research done back in 2019, and that actually had people looking at various charge discharge cycles and they were finding that they were getting 850 out of these batteries in the norm and by that stage they were getting down to about 80 percent of its new capacity so that's not too bad that's two Mm. and a half years or thereabouts if you're charging every day and you still use it it's just down to 80 percent of new so keep all that in mind but again that's where i say you might extend it by a few months which is okay but if you've been so focused on that to get a few extra months out of it you go was it really worth it yeah was it worth it yeah up on crime as we delve into an issue that's got London buzzing literally. Mobile phone theft has shot up with a staggering 57,174 phones pinched in the city over the past year alone. One every nine minutes, folks. Major players like Apple, Samsung and Google are talking at a conference to discuss how to to make our our pocket companions less appealing to thieves. Matt, how to make them less appealing to thieves without making them less appealing to consumers? Well, I actually thought they were less appealing to thieves. So I was actually quite surprised about this story because I've often talked about it. And, and let's just pick iPhones, for example. Mm. And there's similar things with different models, but I'll pick on iPhone. So if I steal your iPhone, the first thing I've got is a pin to get past. Now, that's mm. not impossible to get mm. past. If it's a four-digit pin, then I've only got zero, 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 four digits, four zeros, to nine, 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 nine. So I've only got 10,000 10, possible combinations. Yeah. I could get through those, but it's clever enough 
to lock you out after you get a few wrong mm. and then give you a little timeout. So you might do, you can set it up five or 10 wrong, for example, and you get a timeout for maybe a minute and you try it again and you get another timeout. So you got to have a fair few goes to finally get it. I can imagine by the time you get to the 10,000th one, and maybe <laughs> this is a hint for people to go for 9998 <laughs> maybe, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so that's that's kind of good for a start. And again, other phones are similar where you've, you've got a pin now, some people out there may not have a pin because they find it inconvenient. Please, folks, at least put a pin mm. on your phone. But then if I get past the pin, great. I've got access to your information, but I probably don't want to be you if I'm stealing your phone. Mm. I'd rather my information. So I reset the phone. Pretty simple process. If you can't reset it on the phone, you can plug it into a computer, reset it. But then you're locked into Apple's Find My or iCloud service. Uh -huh. So now it comes up and says, oh, this phone appears to be locked to James Eddy. Please put in the password for his account on the iTunes account and that'll unlock it so you can now use it. Well, now that's a whole other ball game. It's not just a four-digit yeah. pin. It's some wonderfully complicated word or numbers or series of other characters that you've come up with that I'm never going to guess. Brute force attack. Well, gee, I'm going to be there for a while. It's mm. going to figure that there's a brute force attack going on in your account. So I figure... I'm never going to get past that. So as a thief, which just for the record, I'm not, but if I was, <laughs> I'd be saying, why bother about going and doing all that? I'm not going to worry about stealing someone's iPhone because of all that complication. Now, if you manage to get past that, you then ring your carrier or talk to your carrier and say, my phone's been stolen. You've got a record of my IME, my serial number. Can you please block that IME so that if anyone gets past those two first steps, the phone's useless to them anyway. So mm. they could use it as a camera maybe, but they can't use it to connect to a carrier's network. Mm. There are some limitations in terms of, depending on the type of phone, whether it might just lock it out of that country or whether it locks it across the world. That's a slightly different scenario. So maybe you could steal it in one country and send it to another part of the world. But with all of that, thieves probably don't want to go through all those steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you This is a lot more opportunistic and so they're looking for the quick fix, yeah? Maybe. I, I hope so. Maybe yeah, maybe they're looking for the ones without a pin. They notice someone mm. at the pub and they sit it down and they just pick it up and start using it and not put a pin in it. Oh, that's a phone that I like the look of. Mm. Maybe some people don't lock themselves into an iTunes account, for example, but... 57,000, one every nine minutes. That's a phenomenal number. Well, what blew me away is from September 2022 to August 2023, there was a 28% increase in mobile phone robberies and a 22% increase in mobile phone thefts. I don't understand the difference between robbery and theft, but yeah, okay. either way, there's a 28 and 22% increase in those, and over a five-year period, a 73% increase. So... Surely, yeah. surely these thieves have worked out. They're not much good to me, but maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's a clever way that thieves get past all of that. Maybe they're just making a nice big pile of them somewhere. <laughs> maybe they're pulling them apart. And so <laughs> this is part of the solution at this conference. So the Met Police in London, even the Mayor's gotten involved, and they're giving sensible advice. Don't leave it sitting in the dash of your car so someone can see it there and go, oh, there's a phone, I'll smash mm. the window and steal the phone. Don't leave it just in your hand, the police are talking about, as you're walking along, if you've got it in oh. your hand, someone grabs it as they run past you, yeah, for example. Right. So sensible advice about anything that could apply to your handbag, to your gold jewellery, whatever, in your hand or sitting in your car, obviously. But the good part is we've got, as you said, Apple, Samsung, Google, all together to say... What's the technology solution to this problem? And I think that's the secret here mm. because some of those things I've talked about, they sound like technology solutions to the problem, but let's see if we can get 
a better technology solution to the problem because if the if the thefts are going up, which I still don't understand, if the thefts are going up, then obviously the technology solutions in place now aren't good enough. And so maybe they do disassemble them and sell off the various parts, the battery, the screen, that type of thing. So mm. you're not selling off the data that's locked there. You're just selling off the other components, the components. to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they can lock those down somehow. So anyway... It's all good for honest consumers like you and I that are less likely to have our phones stolen as this technology progresses. Are you tired of the daily drill with tangled cables cluttering your bathroom countertop? What if I told you that you could keep your pearly whites pristine without plugging in your electric toothbrush? This electrifying advancement is making Nikola Tesla's dream a reality. Y-Charge is beaming enough energy through the air to charge your electric toothbrush from up to, get this, nine metres away. That's a big bathroom. Matt, you could probably have the charger at the end of the hallway. (laughs) You could probably put just a couple around your house. Now, Nikola Tesla did have the idea of wireless power. Yeah. yeah, that was he had a couple of really big ideas that really didn't come to fruition. No, and the whole idea from his perspective of wireless power was to transmit this out into the atmosphere for and free. People, for free. Well, that was a, another minor part, but and that's probably part of the problem as well because someone like General Electric probably said, well, that's great, but how do I charge Well, General Electric wasn't that um, Edison. It was Westinghouse. I oh, know. Sorry, you're right. Yes. What you, so Westinghouse. Westinghouse is saying, yeah, that's I like your idea, Nicola, but yeah, I want to make I'd money. like to make some money from this. <laughs> That's right. And who's going to pay for all the setup of this to be able to generate some income? And from what I gather, on? Tesla was just about the science. He didn't care about the business. Um, and while he might have made some money at one stage, he actually died a pauper. And I think that's the thing. He just loved the technology. Mm. I think there's still some problems, though, with the technology in mm. terms of the amount of power you might lose. Now, I'm imagining that you would lose power to the inverse of the square. I did well, wonder whether it might have been cube. No, no, no. It's uh, the inverse square. So, yeah, um, yeah and, and you're right. So it's just radiating that power out in, um, well, 720 degrees. So you do that. So you say, let's have some power here in one spot. Radiate it out. You're losing it to basically the inverse square. So even if he came around the issue around the free part of it mm. and said, that's fine, we'll work out some way that we're going to supply power for free, the amount of power you would have at one spot to provide power for the city, mm. then you'd say... That would be an enormous amount of radiation. That's right. And an enormous amount of power lost. Basically, you've got to generate that power in the first place. So forget about that for a moment. But Tesla's concept here is used with exactly this. So we charge, why charge? It's spelled W-I hyphen charge. It's an Israeli company. And they've got this toothbrush that the base of it that you would normally plug into a normal power socket, a normal GPO, you plug that in and you sit your toothbrush on top to charge it up. Okay, no big deal there. The base of this one, though, doesn't plug in to anything. It just sits on the bench. Yeah. You've got to install a transmitter, say, for example, in your ceiling. Again, as you say, that nine metres roughly, you can have it in there. And it sits there and it picks up enough power from the air. Now, keep in mind that we're talking about something here that uses about three watts of power. And I think that's the secret. So you can have something that might be transmitting a reasonable amount of power, maybe 100 watts, for example, not going to do too much damage, not wasting too much power, Mm. to be able to have you with the convenience of sitting your toothbrush charger anywhere in your bathroom. Mm, do we really need it? Is it a <laughs> is it a, a solution looking for a problem to solve? It might be, but I can see. But I can the, see some people are going to go, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, I can see the next step 
being much more exciting. So we're talking about maybe three watts for a toothbrush. But mobile phones, wireless charges for mobile phones, typically are about 15 watts or 20 mm. watts, depending on the model. So maybe having a room in your house that your phone just charges by being in that room. So imagine a mobile phone model that comes out with this charging coil built into the phone, if they can make it small enough, and then you walk into the room and it just starts charging your phone. So put it in your office, for example, put it wherever, and you just have that charging. So my question is, what sort of electromagnetic radiation is actually being emanated? Is it radio waves? Is it microwaves? It would have to be radio waves because it would be, I imagine generating enough energy that it creates in a coil in mm. the charging base or in the coil in a phone, if you did that, that it creates uh, electric fee or electric current in that coil. what we don't want is people um, having to wear aluminium foil <laughs> no, hats. No, you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so while it's only using three watts for the device that it needs, you're probably not too worried about that. And obviously I'm talking about radio waves here, yeah, which yeah. we've got exposure to. We've talked about that before. But if you wanted to be able to run your oven in the kitchen wirelessly, you might need to have a lot more power and that might be a bit scary for that. I should have done the calculation before the show to use the inverse square law and look at how so much power you would for need. another story. That's right. Well, there you go. There's a story for next week maybe. But from nine metres away, how much power would you need? For three watts, that's fine. But for an oven that might be three kilowatts yeah, <laughs> rather than three watts, that might be a bit scarier. But I, I literally can see this happening with mobile phones. I can see someone coming up with the idea of a mobile phone. And well, I, I thought, thought the idea. idea was there not long ago, um, or maybe 15 years ago perhaps, people were saying, oh, we should start to investigate this. Because I remember having a conversation with, with an uncle about this, and he was saying, oh, I'm very concerned about just how much radiation is going to be beaming through your house. Yeah. But, of course, you should only be worried about it if it's microwaves and it's super intense focused on a little area or if it's the high um, the high frequency stuff, the, the UV or higher. Yeah, so the, the ionising radiation. Yeah. But again, I think you'll see – so we've got wireless chargers now. They're commonly used with mobile phones, but they're obviously very close to each other. It's the same sort of concept, I'd imagine, but just further away. Mm. So, yeah, you, and you do know we do lose a little bit of energy when we have a wireless charger that sits basically – back-to-back with something, but the further away you go, inverse square law, that gets a bit interesting. So keep an eye out for this one. Today we're talking about an astronomical feat that's a literal game changer. NASA is... NASA. NASA is is different to NASA. In fact, it's NASA who's dishing out virtual tune-ups for the Voyager probes. Folks, these space probes have gone, been gone for so long, they're now scouting the reaches beyond our solar system. And updating their software is a big deal because they're getting 17 kilometres further away every second. 17 kilometres per second, that's amazing. These tiny fixes have some massive implications, Matt. I get a bit annoyed when I get an update on my phone or I won't be able to use my phone for two or three minutes or <laughs> my computer and I've got to reboot my computer. Oh. Yeah, and it happens every you know, couple of days, maybe every couple of weeks. Oh, what a hassle. And I don't feel so bad now because Voyager 1 and the Voyager update, 2. The update got a cop. <laughs> that's right. They need a software update. Both of them need a software update. But just the distance away they mm. both are, we're talking about 24 billion kilometres for yeah, Voyager wow. 1. 19 billion for Voyager 2. So traveling at near enough the speed of light to get out there, you're talking about 18 hours to reach the closest one. So here we are at NASA sitting in the control room and we say, just send that patch. Okay, 
let's wait 18 hours for that patch to be received. We hope it applies the patch correctly, and then let's wait another 18 hours because it'll take that long for us to know it'll whether send or not back a message to say, yep, that's got right, it. everything's okay. So 36 hours. So my little three or four minutes on my phone or computer yeah. reboots doesn't seem so <laughs> bad anymore. But there's a few fascinating... But the operating system that's on Voyager has got to be an ancient one, and I'm guessing not a very fast one. Not a very fast one. So I thought about this. I would think that it would have been some sort of machine language, assembly language, mm. just something. Because we're talking about the 70s. 1977, they were both launched. punch cards. Hopefully <laughs> it's not punch cards, but you're right. Probably not far past that. But I, So I think there would be something, and I would imagine that sitting in the corner somewhere at NASA is the computer that's the same as on Voyager 1 and Voyager mm. 2, so that when you're doing anything, you go and sit on that computer. And there's an old guy, a really <laughs> old guy sits next to it, waiting for the tap on the shoulder. Maybe. So there'd be, again... Let's assume it's some sort of machine language, some sort of assembly language. The, the code that would be written there would be very much just a specific code to Voyager. It wasn't as if you'd go and buy Windows. Windows didn't exist and you probably wouldn't put Windows up into Voyager anyway because yeah, yeah. you have to reboot every couple of days. But I think there'd be something that would be very specific to that. So there'd be someone, as you say, some old guy who's the guy who knows programming yeah. on the Voyager. And he was just an apprentice when he started. <laughs> and he's still there with his old grey beard. <laughs> and some young, bright kids would get out of university, come work for NASA, and they'd say, go and learn this programming language from 50 years ago oh, just wow. in case we need to do something. So there's That's that issue. back to first principles. It, absolutely right. Now, then you've got some other issues. You've got a fairly small amount of memory, you would think, yeah. on the Voyager spacecraft computer. And then you've got the reliability of all these components. There's not a nice little handy technician around the corner that can just slip in and drop a new hard drive in or mm. put some new components in. So this stuff's been running for a long time. The computer in the corner at NASA's been running for a long time. So whether they had a redundant computer as well, or maybe a couple, so that when one failed, they could switch over to another one, not sure, mm. but I'm pretty impressed that it's all operating. Now, what they're doing with this, this update that they're doing, this is allowing them to change the way their thrusters work. What they've actually found is that the thrusters have built up some residue on the inlet tubes. And so they want to change how long the thrusters go for, whether it might be short bursts now, they want to go longer or vice versa. But by doing that, they believe they can get another five years out of these. Now, these have already gone a long oh, way. Right. Yeah, look, but they're not going to hit the brakes once they hit that five-year mark. There's, well, They need thrusters to stop them. But uh, So they're just going to keep drifting. and They're going to, but it's more about how long can we keep getting information back. Yeah, and, yeah. and by doing this, they but believe... I assume with the thrusters, they're trying to control it and steer it in a direction. That's right. There'd be somewhere where they'd want to steer it to, but at some point... I reckon that computer goes. Eh, what? I've had enough. Yeah. And it, and it stops working. <laughs> so you're right. It'll still In a be voice like uh, the one from Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Probably. Uh, it'll keep going and going and going. You're right. There's nothing. Newton's law says it'll just keep travelling until an external unbalanced Such force acts on existence. it. But it goes along there. But some stage, I think it'll stop giving us back information. It'll yeah. just go. They won't get some information for well, a period of time. It won't have the strength to be able to send something back that will will reach us with enough intensity for us to be able to read. That, but maybe it just finally fails. Maybe yeah, that okay. computer on there finally goes, you know what, I've had enough and just conks out. <laughs> Is that a technical term? Too many term? updates. Too many updates, that's right. So it does seem fascinating, though, doesn't it, that you're, they're doing updates from here mm. all the way out there. It's so, amazing. But it's still sending us back information now, so it's quite fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. 
awash with talk about the latest tech, AI has chipped away at the competition over the past 11 months to become Collins Dictionary's Word of the Year. It's a sign of the time, so let's decode this trend. Matt? Well, I've got an issue. I've got an issue with an initialism being the word of the year. Oh, yeah. It's not an initialism of the year. Is that a word? Is it initialism? Uh, So if it's it's not an acronym, if it doesn't spell out a word, so Qantas, for example, while I was thinking of baggy trackers there, Qantas is an acronym because it gives you a word, but the letters make up other words. But if it's not a word, so AI is initialism. So as an initialism, how can they call it, this is my complaint to Collins, how can they call it the word of the year when it's not actually a word. Well, you can just vote with your feet and just go to Macquarie or <laughs> that's Oxford that's and right. just <laughs> so use them as this. Or, sorry, don't want to... That's me being a pedant. <laughs> so I'll put that aside for the moment. So let's accept the fact that it is word of the year. Oh, it's still... I, I cringe a bit when I say it. Okay, let's, let's get over it. I'm, I'm past that. So the interesting part here is that it's not something that's just tech jargon. We've talked about mm. AI for a little while now, but it's become so ingrained in our everyday banter that obviously Collins Dictionary has said, well, you know what? That's good enough for us. That's going to be the word of the year. And yeah, right. it really, it's actually quite interesting. When you look back at previous words of the year, it gives you a bit of a snapshot on things that are happening, trends that are happening across society. So I quite like looking at those. Now, why do they choose AI? Well, the use of the term AI has quadrupled over the last 12 months. So okay. in our phones, on, in our music, in you know, just general conversation, I mean, the Beatles, which we will talk about a bit more in terms of bringing something back from the past, mm. when people say, oh, yeah, AI was used for that, people don't say, huh, what's that mean? Everyone just goes, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. So AI certainly mm. has been something that's basically, I suppose, come into every part of it. There was a global summit. The UK's Prime Minister hosted the global summit, talked about the benefits of AI, the pitfalls of AI. So essentially you've got people just accepting AI as part of it. The runners-up for the word of the year also, I don't mind looking at those because that gives you an idea of what was really the trends in the last year. So some of the runners-up were Basball, so for those international, those international listeners that don't love their cricket as much as I do, <laughs> baseball is the term that they gave to the English cricket team, the style of cricket they were playing. Oh, okay. And the Brendan McCullum is the coach of the English cricket team yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah, His right. nickname's Baz, and so the style, the more aggressive, innovative wild, loose and fancy style of test cricket they were playing was named baseball. So probably not as international as mm. maybe AI, but certainly that was one of the runners-up of the ter- of the um, of the year. For other ones, we had things like de-influencing. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. De-banking. De- so de-banking. gaining away from normal banking norms. Yeah. So, yeah, so greedflation. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nepo baby, which is all about nepotism, yeah. and semaglutide, and that's what <laughs> that's some various words. You can see why AI probably won. Um, so it's uh, it's AI a, was the easiest one to pronounce. That's probably that's it. Uh, so quite interesting, but I I think that it really when you go back and look at some of those over the years, it's quite interesting to look at those and get that snapshot. But for the moment, AI was the one that Colin said was the word that captured the imagination of more people than anyone else. Yeah. Fridge 
tech has been a bit of a thing in recent decades. Some nifty tech has lent on connecting to the internet, which for mine seemed a bit of a random stretch, and other models want to offer a sneak peek with, uh, without opening even the doors. It's felt for a while like fridge designers have been under a bit of pressure. Well, the good people at Whirlpool have come up with a new fridge that might really start busting into people's kitchens. Slimmer doors and bigger spaces sound like a genuinely practical step towards some revolutionary kitchen design, Matt. I hadn't actually thought of these poor people out there with internet-connected fridges when they had the Optus outage. Imagine that. What would you do? How would you know what to order to put in your fridge to keep your fridge stocked up? Yeah, so there were some other issues that I hadn't considered in this process until you mentioned internet-connected fridges. But this is interesting... I want to talk a little bit about just the history of refrigeration, but I don't think we give enough credit to refrigeration. Fire. Everyone talks about fire. When mankind kind of discovered fire, I'm not sure if you discovered fire, you saw a a fire across the horizon somewhere and went, there's some big burning thing I don't want to go near. But I suppose when they started control fire, then you could use that to keep you warm. You could use it for cooking, protection probably, because you probably could put a bit of fire around your campsite and keep away some of those marauding animals. So that was a pretty important process for humans. But what about refrigeration? Once you started to be able to preserve foods, reduce food waste, improve food safety, mm. surely that's had a huge impact on health. Oh, it was a big stuff, um, a step up from uh, having to salt everything to, <laughs> yeah, to Bilio right. or um, or just having like wet rags hung around the outside of your your, your cupboard. Yeah, wet rags and a bit of breeze going through yeah. and hoping that it'd be enough. So when we go back we look at refrigeration, William Cullen first demonstrated artificial cooling in 1748 But Jacob Perkins, I give most of the credit to, he came up with the first vapour compression cycle. So he turned that into a refrigerator, and basically that was really the start of refrigeration in 1834. We go through a range of different ones over the years. Probably the start of maybe modern refrigeration was probably about 1913 when Fred Wolf, the American, had the first home electric refrigerator. Probably relied on electricity then as well. (laughs) Um, So that was pretty impressive. Then when you jump forward a bit from that, they had refrigerators with foam because there was no point cooling it all down if it then lost that coolth. I'm not sure if that's a word. Yeah, Yeah, instantly. (laughs) Why not? Warmth, coolth, surely there's a word there. So having all of this wonderful technology in the doors, in the walls to try and keep the heat out and keep the cool in made sense. It's probably been about 60 years since we've seen any major change in the foam that's inside a refrigerator. Now, I don't know how it happened, but sorry, can I just interrupt you there? CFCs were introduced somewhere in the 50s, I think, maybe early 60s. Um, you remember CFCs, that yeah. nasty demon that destroyed our own zone, ozone layer. Yep. Apparently, the guy who developed that for refrigeration was also the guy who put lead in petrol too to stop the engine knocking. He's and made some major contributions. There to is this, for for one person to do more damage to the environment than him, that would take some remarkable steps. So it, that guy. And to be fair, I think that was back around the early 1900s, maybe 1920s that at least the CFC and maybe the, the lead was there as well. To be fair, I think they were great solutions at the time, at the time. without the greater knowledge of the impact. I'm sure That's he didn't right. go, you know what, this helps us with refrigeration. Damn that ozone, who cares about that? So, <laughs> Well, yeah, and the other thing was is it was small numbers back then yeah. and you know, had no idea how big that was going to go. So. That's right. So yeah. now refrigerators obviously 
different change there in the gas we use for that compression cycle. So we don't have CFCs in there anymore, which is fantastic. So that's good. But the foam, the foam hasn't changed Mm. for about 60 years. So that's interesting because we focus a lot on some parts of technology and miss the obvious. And that's, I think, exactly what's happened here. They've been focusing on the motor, the compression, the gas cycle, all sorts of wonderful things. As you say, internet connected, see through the door, tap on the door to let it light up inside, all sorts of things. Fancy stuff. Meanwhile, you've still got these big, thick doors, and you see how big a fridge is, and then you open it up, it's the opposite of a TARDIS. It's a lot smaller inside than you think it should be. So Whirlpool said, why don't we do a bit of vacuum dooring? They haven't come up with a really sexy name for it yet. Actually, they, they're calling it Slim Tech for the right. fridge. But essentially, they've Vacuum said... Vacuum dooring. Well, that's my, me, that's my term. That's that'll, what we'll do, call, so. that'll do me. But they've basically got a double-skinned door and walls, and they've got a vacuum. Now, of course, you and I both know it's not going to be a perfect vacuum. Mm. It's going to be much lower density air than on the outside. So even space isn't a perfect vacuum. You've got some molecules out there. But with that low density with call it a near vacuum if you like, it's not going to be able to have convection or radiation go through that door easily. But the beauty of it is you can have a much thinner door. So we're talking about a reduction in wall thickness of about 60%. So a typical wall or door is about five centimetres. They're down to about two centimetres now. So what Whirlpool have found with that is if you want the same outside size of the fridge, you can actually get a 25% larger internal capacity just by reducing the thickness of the walls and the door. Mm. So it sounds bleedingly obvious when we talk about it. And when you think about coffee cups and water bottles that have got a vacuum, again, a near vacuum seal between the walls, and you go, gee, that coffee cup, that's fantastic. It doesn't feel hot in my hand and the coffee's really hot still. That's just done by having Mm. nothing for that heat to go through between well, the right. two walls. Well, that's right. Heat's got to be transported. Uh, well, it can be transported by radiation, but um, but convection or conduction that requires the particles, doesn't it? Well, so sorry, that'd be right, wouldn't it? It'd be conduction. I said radiation before. It'd be conduction and convection. And convection is not going to be uh, carrying the heat when you haven't got the particles, but radiation will. Yeah. But the radiation would be much less. Yeah. So the conduction and the convection mm. would be what you're normally using to get heat from some surface to another by the particles that are there. Bingo. Yeah. Now, the foam, when you've got foam, obviously, then effectively what you're doing is you're trapping little gas particles in that polyurethane foam. Yes. So you're trying to stop that movement of air going through there. But yeah. if there's not much air for it to move through, bingo, you've got a really good example of not that heat being transmitted. So bingo. really clever. Love it. Love it. the simple concept. When I say simple, it's obviously got to be manufactured in such a way that they can take most of that air out and make it strong enough that it doesn't collapse with the external air pressure, all sorts of things, I'm sure. But Whirlpool have got this now. They've got fridges being released next year that have got this slim tech technology. It won't take long before every other manufacturer says, oh, I yeah, like that idea. Yeah, and that. Surely you can't patent a vacuum. Surely that's something that you, is not patentable. The name SlimTech, I'm sure, is, but the actual process, maybe not. So Yeah, expect- I, I'm, a, I'm a take it or leave it on the internet connection, but I reckon the whole Slimline fridge yeah, it sounds good, might it? be sold on that one. It seems that in the current day that there is a constant arm wrestle between convenience and security. The convenience of online shopping comes with a clear risk of porch pirates stealing your stuff before you get home. Those mongrels! So it makes sense to have a secure box on the porch that only you and the delivery guy can get into. Matt, how are these going to work and 
is it keeping the customers happy that already have them? I understand they're already out on the market. They are out on the market, a few different brands of them. But what scared me was that just in the first 10 months of 2022, not sure why the first 10 months seems like a strange time frame, but mm. in the first 10 months of 2022, one in seven Americans had a package stolen from their home. One in seven. One there's in a seven. lot of Americans around. There's a lot of Americans. That's a lot of packages stolen, isn't yeah, it? Wow. I don't know whether people just hang somewhere that they know there's a person who gets regular packages delivered or people just drive around and go, oh, hold on, I just drove past somewhere. Yeah, there was I something saw a out package on the doorstep. That's right. It looks like it's got my name over it. It must have got delivered to the wrong location. Yeah, Let's right. go and do it. And particularly around Christmas as well, um, there'd be so. a lot of packages being delivered. That's right. Now, people have got doorbells, video doorbells. They've got videos on their house. That's kind Yeah, but of, hey, stop, come back. It yeah. doesn't generally stop them, <laughs> it does it? Or... I've got the video of the person who stole it in a hoodie and a mask. Mm. Here, police, can you go and do something with that? And they went, mm, mm. we've got kind of people that are doing got other things more we've serious got to do. crimes. <laughs> you lost a package worth 100 bucks. Sorry, it's down the priority mm. list. So this idea is something... It's a glorified letterbox, isn't it? <laughs> it's a glorified letterbox that's big and secure. Yeah. And I, I suppose you'd only get something like this if you were a regular purchaser of online products. Mm. And maybe if you had a few thefts, that's usually what drives someone putting something like this in place. And there's a number of different brands of them, but basically it's a smart delivery box. You put it on your porch. Now you can attach it, physically attach it. You can bolt it down to the porch or they are just heavy. So for mm. someone that comes along with an opportunistic theft and goes, oh, it's too heavy, I'll just leave it here, yeah. then it probably just says go to the next door neighbour, they've got an easier package to steal, which yeah. often security is about that, just go somewhere else, go away from me. The other thing is you're probably not going to steal it unless you saw someone put something in it. Yeah, that's right. Imagine taking home one of these big heavy things that's empty. That's right. You break it open, you get home, you get the chisel out and the hammer and you break it apart and you go, oh great, I've got an empty <laughs> heavy box that's now <laughs> useless because I've broken it. Busted. That's right. So essentially, let's say you put one in, let's say you attach it to the ground and it's sitting there and then it's connected to your home Wi-Fi. You can control it remotely via your phone. Delivery person turns up, presses the doorbell or in some way, shape or form, you know that they're coming, you can either open it for them, so yes, it's now open, you can talk to them, or you can actually send out, when you get information about a delivery coming, you can send a pin to that delivery person uh -huh. and they can open it up. At this stage, the success rate of delivery people opening it up, having me supply that pin, is about 50%. So maybe ah, what happens is they turn up and they go, miss, isn't it? it is a bit hit and miss, and they go, oh, there's a box there, I guess I'll sit it on top of the box. It doesn't magically morph into the box. <laughs> it would make more sense to be a bit like a letterbox that you can put it into, but not yeah. take it out of easily. Maybe that would be better. So I, I think that'd be interesting, having some sort of flap, a bit like when you buy a drink from a vending machine mm. and it f pushes down, when you push your hand through the flap, it kind of closes off above. Yeah. Maybe something like that would be better, but at this stage... They've got to be opened up. Look, I saw somehow. videos of delivery guys going and putting it next to the box <laughs> or just getting to the front doorstep, pitching the, the, the thing on the front doorstep without even acknowledging that there's a box yeah. there. So that's a bit of the problem. You want to get it open some way, shape or form. But that would be, I think, the next iteration. Well, there was also a thing with because I had a camera there and it says, oh, someone's approaching. So you've got the opportunity to get to, the, um, to a voice thing and call out, oh, here, put, put the package in to me. But these guys were running up, 
dropping the thing, taking a photo, and they were gone before yep. anyone could So you're say sitting in class with a class full of students in front of you, yeah. keeping one eye on your phone, waiting for the delivery guy so you can capture him when he's there and say, okay, can you please put it in the box? I'll unlock it for you. Yeah, but some of these even had their own automated voice responses. Oh, right. Please okay. drop in me. Yep. But it was just still too slow for them. <laughs> it was calling out to them, and they're already in the truck driving off. So I think the, ne- I think the next iteration will have to have the ability – to put it in without any other mm. interaction. So like that flat. Well, if they become box. common, then people will be expecting to use them, I guess. Yeah, well. If people aren't expecting to use them, if they're not common yet. We also are questioning here the motivation for a delivery driver. Mm. Yes, that's is, right. Is the motivation to make sure that package is secure or have they done their job once it's at the door mm. and what happens after that is not their problem. See, if I'm going to be a delivery driver, I want to make sure that person got it. In fact, I might even ring them up later in the day. How'd you go with your package? Did you get it? Because I left it. <laughs> and your boss would say, where's your productivity, James? You've only gotten through half the delivery. Yeah, but I've rung them all and made sure they're all okay. And one lady told me about a lovely sure. day she was having, and it was a really interesting chat I had to her. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where we're going. Maybe when you go through all this trouble, maybe you just go down to a physical shop and buy the thing you're after yeah. anyway. Once you go through all this, sometimes maybe that would be easier. <laughs> And that's a wrap on a retrospective romp through the second semester of Season 3. Thanks for tuning into Tech Talk and sharing these tech triumphs with me. Next week, we're back to our regular programming with James Eddy as your host. Season 4 will once again be packed with the latest and greatest in gadgetry and geekery. We'll be dishing out fresh tech treats and digital delights. So don't forget to tune in for a new chapter of Captivating Tech Tales each and every Monday morning at 9am Sydney, Australia time. Until then, keep clicking, stay curious, and remember, in the world of technology, the only constant is change.